0: Log Talk Radio.
1: center of the world Africa. Planned by the Creator. Sysanthropus was the first man found on the Earth. That Earth
2: was the motherland, Africa. We know
0: that without total understanding of what happened in the past, it would be difficult
3: to relate to the future. We know that within
4: the structure of the music, there should be a message. And the message should be truth. So now,
1: we give you Africa, the center of the world. So
3: vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony,
5: the earth supports our conscious effort for sustaining humanity, human beings
6: Passion for life, erasing away all the strife Telling our tales with verbal mail Putting honey on the blade Creating language to persuade Share who we've always been Always a blessing, never a sin We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop And we don't stop Since our mother gave birth to everyone on earth So we echo her call And always walk tall. We're hips of the world, so we create black pearls. Everyone can wear, everyone can share. We can't live in despair, so we shine everywhere. On and on. On and on.
2: go through, and we'd like to invite you to come and join us by dialing in at 323-679-0841. Like always, the way we get started with our party, we will introduce to you our political panelists and analysts, followed by what's going on in your world and community, and then the discussion from various articles as related to our theme, which is today the how we go through, and we do our closing remarks. So that's the order of our day. At this point in time, I'd like to welcome you again. And what we're going to do right now is to introduce you, introduce to you, our political panelists and analysts for today's program. Right now we have Brother Hakeek. We will bring him in and we will say welcome, Brother Haqueek, to Africa on the
7: Move. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haqueek maki Mushoki turn on with African awareness, and of course, brother Africa. You know, my thing is all about institution building. But I got to tell you, brother Africa, what I find uh, somewhat extraordinary is a tendency among many people to vote against their own self-interest. I find that very, very interesting. And when you think about it, uh, one of the things that often we we don't engage is the whole question around the biology in terms of decisions that we make often the question of biology is is eliminated, and we often talk about material material existence being a function in terms of defining, you know, how we think, how we act, and how we behave. And that's not always the case. Now, I'm going to read this piece, Brother Africa, and i am allude to conservatism a lot, but one of the things I want to sort of disclose, uh, you know, as a preface, uh, one of the things that we have to understand that conservative is conservative. Now, conservative minds, be they African, white, Latin, or Asian, perceive the world in similar terms. Now, the biology of the human brain does not recognize the false socio-political construct of race. It should be remembered. Some Africans sided with the Confederacy during slavery, and, and during the Holocaust, some Jews sided with the Nazis. So this notion in terms of conservatism only applies to white people. I wanted to start a notion right offhand. And so people think on a much higher level in terms of the, the questions or the problem, kind of problems that uh, humanity is confronted with, which has nothing to do necessarily with one's skin color. So having said that about Africa, I want to talk briefly about this whole uh, nexus between the human mind, politics, and the biological dimensions. Now, comparison between totalitarianism and psychosis is not incidental. Psychiatrist Joseph Merlo's book Rape of the Mind* talks about delusional thinking afflicted with political leaders' inclination toward tyranny and and despotism. Often we equate the rise to totalitarianism or authoritarianism, for that matter, to matters of economics, equating human motivation with materialism, never considering all motivation regardless of the intent starts with the mind. In fact, the genius of political terror inflicted on people is calculated to overwhelm humans' cognitive systems that provide a sense of control, a sense of connection, and sense of meaning. This effect is achieved not by misallocation of money in the economic system, i.e. poverty, but social policy reinforced by institutions to shape human perception, thereby increasing the receptibility of the intended message. Social psychologists uh, relatively recently came up with a theory called the terror management theory, a social theory on why totalitarianism, total government control, tends to be successful in appealing to people in society. The theory holds people fear of death increases feelings of existential existential threats in order to mitigate the feelings of impending doom or death humans erect belief systems to minimize the fear of death such systems include religion national identity and political ideology religion tends to embellish the afterlife providing literal immortality while national identity and political ideology provide immortality of a different sort where one's legacy will remain for all posterity inevitably these systems facilitate tribal thinking consisting of in-group and out-groups. The natural inclination of the in-group to alleviate a sense of threat is to force to others, the out-group, to accept their beliefs or face punishment. In the U.S., punishment of others does not resonate based upon ethnicity alone, but operates independently, ensuring institutions' legitimacy is unquestioned. A couple of examples come to mind. First, voter suppression of African and Latin communities. The idea is to is to empower the in-group and enact policy that presumably will disadvantage or punish the out-group. Secondly, educational funding disparities. Public school funding relies on local tax revenues from property taxes to fund schools. Obviously, poor communities do not have large revenues, revenue base equal to wealthy communities. And as a result, the resources, books, and equipment poor schools' needs are not available. The in-group prevails, leaving poor schools ill-equipped to compete. Now, it can be argued that human propensity for instructional survival, instinctual survival complicates humans' ability to elevate logic over instinct. In the Western world, uh, leaders and intelligence agencies employ continuous fear to form an insecurity among the populace. By instilling fear in the populace, Government or elites perpetuate a unique message to their followers. Their message being "We are government, and we are here for you exclusively. Giving its followers a sense of purpose and reassurance, the only remaining relevant strategy for the state is to employ media propaganda to reinforce the notion of us against them. This tribal mindset is best facilitated by playing up the existential threats that embody society, news narratives that exaggerate violence. Uh, not violence perpetuated by corporations, Uh, racial hostilities, terrorism, under control youth, while effective inculcating fear in the general public tends to resonate more forcibly with self-described conservatives. Why is this? Social psychologists and neuropsychiatrists for over two decades have been studying conservative brain versus liberal brain. Findings have consistently shown the prefrontal cortex of the human brain conservatives tend to not be as effective in regulating cognitive control. The function of the prefrontal cortex is to override primitive instincts or biases contributing to fear or the irrational, thereby making rational thought possible. A perfect example is demonstrated in an Ipsos poll which shows 54% of Republicans or conservatives oppose critical race theory, while 23% Democrats and 34% of independence opposed critical race theories, conservatives overwhelmingly show, saw a threat others, others overwhelmingly did not see. Now, for the sake of context, it should be pointed out that of this survey group, 7% could 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 define critical race theory, but not necessarily uh, correctly. Now, in a subsequent University of Virginia poll, the question of preserving white European heritage was asked. 51% of the conservatives agreed, compared to 26% of Democrats 29% of independence. Perhaps the implicit threat to conservatives is a loss of social status that change embodies. Ironically, resistance to change, the hallmark of conservatism, makes conservatives more vulnerable to manipulation and propaganda by political leaders and, as such, more likely to embrace totalitarianism or authoritarianism as a way to keep the outgroup in its place. The January 6th insurrection is a perfect example of that. Now, individual differences in political attitudes and brain structure does not end with less than optimal prefrontal cortex. The Montreal Neurologic Institute looked at the at amygdala of the human brain to assess its functions relative to political behavior. Using an MRI scan, the study was able to deduce gray matter associated with the amygdala had a greater volume of matter on the right half of the amygdala. The amygdala function is to, to sense threats. As a layperson, one certainly could theorize the relationship between a voluminous amygdala and perceptions of threats everywhere. The study went on to say conservatives tend to respond to threatening situations with more aggression than liberals and are more sensitive to threatening facial features or expressions. This would explain why conservatives tend to see expression of hopelessness, despair, and depression on other faces as potential threat. Most liberals tend to reason that the expression on someone's face may be indicative of stress, or the accumulation of inequality in society. Now, the perceptions of being surrounded by threats does have ramifications. In the U.S., along with other Western states, better lines are being drawn. For conservatives advocating death to the outgroup, their views may be the result of biological distinction, complicating the ability to disdain the rational from the irrational. Whatever the culprit, the level of purchasing weapons have proliferated. Now, according to the FBI National Criminal Background Check, Gun sales have increased over the last decade. In 2010, 14.4 million people applied for guns. One decade later, 39.7 million people applied for guns. Midway through the 2021, 22.2 million people and rising applied for guns. The bottom line is that we have a problem. Reason with some conservatives may not be possible. Instead, the focus has to be self-empowerment in the face of threats emanating from the right and their left-wing minions. In response to the H.O. question, does everyone want freedom, the answer is, of course not. And, Brother Africa, I'll close with that.
2: Thank you, Brother Haki. Next we go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon.
8: Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, nineteen sixty-eight. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Sei Tongue is this messenger for government. Fathers help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice and I vote, and uh, I like to say equal rights amendment, yes, ERA, yes. Women hold up half the sky, and this once again, it's a pleasure and a, and a privilege to be on the show tonight. And thank you, Brother Africa.
2: Thank you, Brother Moses. From Brother Moses, we now go to, I believe we have Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, welcome to Africa on the Move.
5: Good evening um, to all the panelists and listeners this evening. My name is Eleanor Johnson, and um, it's a pleasure to be with you. Have, uh, I hope you enjoyed the show, and thank you for uh, allowing me to participate and listening in. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Sister Eleanor, to listening audience. You are listening to Africa on the Moon. We're going into a quick station break, and when we come back, uh, we will entertain the the section of what's going on in your world and the community. We would like for you to join us. Uh, down in 323 679 one We acknowledge your last four numbers. Before going this break, we would like to acknowledge a couple of important things that are going on. First, we would like to say happy birthday to our, one of our panelists, uh, Brother Aki, we'd like to wish you a happy birthday. And we also like to acknowledge that there was a recent ongoing um, incident that taking place throughout the Caribbean, in particular um, in Haiti, where there was an earthquake register, at, at least. It has been reported, 7.4 um, on a Richter set scale. Also, there are severe storms that's coming through, and there has been many, many lives lost. And to your brothers and sisters, uh, we are with you. Uh, we will do all that we can. But we send our our blessings and our best wishes to all of the brothers and sisters in Haiti and throughout the region that may have been impacted by this recent earthquake and the weather that is coming through. So on that note, um, we can go to our station break. Um, Music with a message, and when we come back, we will discuss what's going on in your world and the community. Join us.
3: Disons mm. non, nous disons non, à ma guerre, à la haine, au racisme, au tribalisme, pour les deux grands notre continent, mm. avec le Congo, le Congo, basé de vos dans l'unité, dans l'amour,
1: la volonté, le cœur,
3: L'amour, la volonté et le sacrifice pour le changement du Congo. pour un Congo
7: nouveau, Madame Patricia Lecois, servant. Banaya Congo de
1: Lugana. Africa, c'est We are strong, Congo We Africa,
9: di ga wa do twa wa te chu di wa ku di wa ka ri la eh, eh. tu gan ne ti te ya ne ma do tu 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 Na fitina, a little bit of na Africa, bit mama 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 bit of a little bit of
2: Key back in and ask them, Brother Haki, what's going on in your world in the community?
7: Well, Brother Africa, i got to tell you, I'm somewhat dismayed at the kind of uh, remedies being applied to the insurrectionists uh, from January January 6th. Uh, this close relationship between prosecutors and these rioters doesn't set well with me. Uh, of course, this kind of relationship uh, between the government and or federal officials and the rioters does have implications, you know, for for not only justice, but uh, the possibility of real justice in society. So the mere fact that these prosecutors are showing these, these 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 riders, many of them, so much leniency, gives rise to the question in terms of just what is their motivation in terms of doing so. Ladies and Brother Africa, I want you to check this out. Now, recently, federal Judge Beryl A. Howell asked Department of Justice prosecutors why are capital rioters or insurrectionists paying fines totaling just $1.5 million when the damage created resulted in more than $500 million in damages. The judge explained the Department of Justice approach to dispensing justice was, would result in taxpayers picking up a pad for a half a billion dollars. The Department of Justice representatives countered the actual amount of damage contributed to the rise was only $1,494,326.55 vehemently disagreeing, the judge reasoned the riders' actions put into motion, expenditures incurred by government uh, to prevent a recurrence of similar riots in the Capitol. The judge alluded to, in part, the $2.1 billion security bill passed in July by Congress, by which $521 million was allocated toward reimbursements for the National Guard, $70 million for the Capitol Police, in addition to $300 million for Capitol Security improvements. Implicit in Judge Howell's assessment was the notion of deterrence. While deterrence as a concept is questionable as a crime-fighting tool, it is certainly one of the tools used by prosecutors in assessing the effectiveness of the office. A tool readily available for prosecutors, backed by, by legal statute, enforced by law, was not utilized by federal prosecutors who mandated it is to impose the maximum hardship on threats to a functioning democracy, this according to politicians. However, federal prosecutors chose not to avail themselves of his most potent weapon. Now, why would this be? In the case of Julian Assange and other whistleblowers, not only is the federal prosecutor complicit in concealing information favorable to the accused, prosecutors seek sentencing well in excess of the impact of the presumed crime committed. So why the seeming preferential treatment of many of the January 6th insurrectionists? Multiple rationales abound as to the possible motivations of federal prosecutors. But given the history of the U.S. and the precarious economic state the country is in, a couple of reasons come to mind. Firstly, the notion what the insurrection did was not so deplorable. After all, these patriots were simply attempting to call attention to presidency. Deflecting attention from statewide caucuses, they found no voting irregularities Express themes contributing to the riots continue to vindicate the riders despite news or video feeds detailing the riots. Ironically, much of the information provided on the riots came from, from the riders' own testimony. Despite multiple sources corroborating the destructiveness of the riders, rationalizations absorbing the of responsibility persist. Some lawmakers describe riders as people who love America. Others blame the rigged elections as a culprit while the conservative political action committee painted the riders as heroes. As abhorrent as the support for riders of these terrorists is, the fact many of the 525 offenders to date have been treated leniently by the federal authorities suggests the idea of accountability has been suspended and the cult-like aberration of the riders may be at play. Now, the bigger problematic issue relating to the leniency afforded the riders may be the result of unconscious bias where prosecutors relate to the defendants. In the U.S., white men lead 79 of the 93 U.S. attorney's offices in the country. Historically, the biases that that in the judicial system have impacted racial disparities in regard to sentencing and employment and may be an issue. Selling the even misdemeanors, can disqualify a former offender from employment. Given the economic downturn and a tight labor market, the prosecutors may be attempting to mitigate sentencing impact on employment opportunities by limiting charges and finding the riders minimum fees in order to increase their job prospects. How else can it be explained that huge government incurred expenses and no defendant paying the price? Would such a scenario be applicable? Applicable if the riders were, if the writers who undermine democracy were African, Latin, Asian, or indigenous? Probably not. Typical mentions of the system would demand repression of such threats from people of color. It would it would demand sentences of long duration to ensure others get the message that any disruption to the system would not be tolerated. Now, with regard to point two, the average age of the insurrectionists was 39 years of age, according to some reports. Given the right-wing drift politically in this country, affording this age the luxury of escaping a criminal designation squarely defining the rioters as a threat to the state, this shows a kind of legitimacy that virtually ensures their involvement and future and future right-wing endeavors utilizing violence. Okay. Since their criminal activity resulted in slap on the wrist thus far, it limits the state's ability to impose harsher criminal sentences in the future. This is not mere conjecture, and viewing many states' opposition to discussions around structural and institutional racism, in particular critical race theory, and wealth enhancement of the wealthy via government policy, Political lines are being drawn. The resulting proposition, prepos- proposition politically is very clear. Those that represent what is perceived as an existential threat are to be dealt with harshly, i.e. Nathan Hale, reality the winter. But those perceived to be carrying out the state's interests are treated gingerly. How else would, exp- how else would you explain riders transversing the Capitol, destroying property, and assaulting the capitalist first line of defense, which is the police? All this done in public display to an international audience audience as embarrassment to the us establishment was clearly probable but the state's response to the riders were lukewarm this congenial response by the state does not see the riders as a political system i'm hoping the state's cozy cozy relationship with the riders would end but i'm not optimistic while one expect, while, while one does not expect punitive punishment to be applied to all the riders those riders who express mission is to facilitate atrocities Indiscriminately killing or bring Nazism into being should be beneficiaries of prison sentences commensurate with the level of carnage they intend. Let's see what state response would be in the future of these criminal cases involving these insurrectionists. I wait, um, I wait with you know with a fainted breath. I'm not optimistic at all about Africa that the that the um, the general tenant that's being created it's going to go anywhere. I think that the prosecutors are more inclined to continue to treat these insurrectionists favorably simply because they understand in terms of strategy that these people are in their best interest to wage war against others in society. So therefore, they are meaningful pawns in the game being perpetuated by those musicians of power. So I anticipate that nothing's going to realistically change in terms of this linear treatment that these uh, these insurrections are receiving. Thank you, brother Haki.
2: Next, we go to brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community?
8: Well, thank you, thank you. Well, here we are sitting in the heart of the beast. As we look out and uh, see, the situation is is um, closing in on on the interests of the beast. Uh, we see that that uh, national liberation struggles um so anti imperialist struggles uh, that we see that the in uh, in afghanistan um the u s has basically negotiated that if you don't do anything to our troops and we'll get out of here basically that's what they they didn't really negotiate for the afghan alternative government or anything, but they basically negotiated for number one, and the, the interest of number one, is, and uh, whatever happens after that, that's, that's their problem. And so, you know, the Taliban, you know, understandably want the U.S. forces off their soil. As Osama bin Laden was pissed off about the U.S. being on Saudi Arabia and other soil and the and he considered it sacred, and, uh, it's an anti-imperialist stance, and, uh, I understand that we may differ on our tactics and strategy, uh,
1: uh,
8: yeah. but we're seeing the same kind of problem, ultimately, I think, and so, um, uh, it's, it's, it's been an interesting week, uh, it looks like, you know, there's going to be a new government, and, uh, it's going to be a Taliban government, and, and, uh, uh, hopefully they will settle down and, and, um, and I don't know, Saudi Arabia is, is, is hard to say. It's hard to say, but, but, uh, I, 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 my concern is for the women and children uh, under that government. And, um. Uh, Meanwhile, in Haiti, like you said, there is a flood, there is a earthquake, and um, they're expecting some weather this coming Monday. Uh, they're expecting some other weather to come through there, and uh, certainly, there are our thoughts and prayers. Thank you.
2: Thank you, brother. Now, next going to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, what's going on in your world and the community?
5: Well, it's been a very hectic week, and I also want to concur with uh, Brother Hakeem. Happy birthday, first of all, to him um, and uh, Brother Moses. Uh, The way the insurrectionists are being handled is unbelievable. When we look at our uh, judicial system and the harsh treatment that uh, common citizens uh, that's yield out to common city, citizens for petty crimes and we look at the number of persons in jail for their use of marijuana and drugs and and now we have war on opioids and uh, it, it, it's it's uh, we recognize that it's not the individual but when it seemed to be an african-american thing Uh, These people were horrors, the drug users. But the thing with these insurrectionists, they committed a crime against the state, and that should not be handled lightly. But it seems to be overlooked. These people attacked the U.S. Capitol, and they should pay for their crimes. People died, and they should pay for their crimes. They should pay the same way other persons pay. Now, if there's an accident where the police hit a car and kill someone while they're pursuing you, you're guilty. You're charged with murder. And you pay the price. Well, so should these insurrectionists. Five people died. And in addition, with the Taliban and uh, in Afghanistan, we've seen thousands of people displaced and trying to rush into Kabul. We see women and children losing their lives. They're not in any militia. They're losing their lives as the Taliban advance. So as advocates for world peace and human rights and worker-controlled businesses and 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 global justice we should uh stand in opposition and uh try to stand in opposition and work with any allies of the Af- afghani people that are willing to support the current afghan afghani government um, this uh violence against women and children and Terrorizing people and closing the borders is an outrage, and that is not an anti-imperialist action. We don't know what kind of action that is, but it's not about liberation. Wearing a burka should be a choice, not thing you do for fear of your life. I don't know if anyone remembers the old Afghanistan where we'd go to soccer stadiums and see women murdered as a form of entertainment. Now we're seeing men smacked in the face for not wearing a beard. These things are outrageous. You know, personal civil liberties and space should be something that every human being is afforded. Again, we feel that, I feel strongly that education, housing, health care, food, water, Clean air are basic human rights. No industry, business, or government should supersede any of those common rights. And I uh, just want to thank you for allowing me to share this with you. And uh, and my sympathy and support goes out to the people in Haiti. It was just last week that they received their first corona. Uh, 19 vaccines and then they're hit with these incredible storms, the earthquake and a possible tsunami so I keep them in my prayers and thoughts and again uh, the insurrectionists as Brother Akeem brought to our attention and as we've all watched are not receiving their just punishment for the harm that they caused to the United States of America and the lives that they uh, took. Those five people would surely be alive today if it weren't for January 6, 2021.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Right now, we're going to a station break. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion on what's going on in your will in the community. This is Africa on the Moon. <laughs>
3: Brother, you down for whatever. chillin' on the corner, brother. i talented, brother. And to every one of y'all behind bars, you know that Angela love oh my black brother, brother I never, I'll never try, try
1: No, no, no. I'll I'll
3: I never want to
1: want to know that
2: I'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. We're in the seat. We're going to take the heat. Because the answer find it. Because stand behind it. We're discussing what's going on in your world community. And to my panelists, there are a couple of things I'd like to raise with, with you today and just get to respond to. One of the issues that taking place this week that was um, shared in the public media is to shoot the battle of water who would have the right to own and control the water and how policies would dictate that particular right. Now, there's the Colorado River, which um, is a border of several more states on the western section of the U.S. Now, they talk about the process of excuse the weather, how the river is becoming um, very low, possibly in some places it may be depleted and what have you. But they're also talking about which states have a right to how to use the water and how it may affect other areas. Now, my question to y'all is that, um, again, here they're talking about another means or justification of why a war would take place in the future, not only maybe inside of this border, but throughout the world. Where we find countries with fresh water, they are finding that um is a valuable resource, and countries are now looking at how can they take it and control it. So what do y'all make of this this whole battle around how human beings are looking at water as another resource to be fought over? Who have the right to these waterways? Given the fact that they may be under certain geographical areas, brother Haki, how do you see this particular battle shaping out? looking at the past history, how have went around the world to take other people's resources.
7: Yeah, well, you know, Brother Africa, you know, the question in terms of scarcity of water is inevitable. Uh, You have a situation where corporations disproportionately use lots and lots of water in order to to grow its products. Uh, So in the process of making all this money, uh, it simply avails them the opportunity to buy up even more water. And so this is a fundamental problem. So in addition to that, we have a situation where, where, where billionaires actually buying up freshwater aquifers, which contribute to the water scarcity. So we've got a problem in terms of that. Now, the, the, the overriding problem, Brother Africa, I think, is the fact that, you know, when we, when we talk about water shortages, we've got to talk about global warming. And, and this, this, this is the thing which is, which is so key. Uh, you know, we've been, la- we've been talking about global warming for the last, for the last two decades and, and no movement yet has been approached uh, that will even begin to tackle the question in terms of you know, global warming. And so with global warming, was essentially we we're talking about a, you know, a, a, a real depreciation when it comes to water levels. And so clearly something has to be done with that. But the question is whether or not we have the will to do that. Many of us are under the perception that, in fact, that uh, you know, that global warming doesn't exist. Now, if we're under the perception that global warming doesn't exist, then, of course, we can never understand the desperation specifically when it comes to, you know, water shortages, you know, occurring not just in the United States but throughout the world. Uh, so, you know, it seems to me, you know, um, you know, uh, you know that, that in itself is problematic. But, but I think more globally, I think you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa, in terms of, you know, water shortages. One of, you know, uh, Africa is under um, great pressure from Western states in terms of the reach and control of its freshwater supplies. In fact, you've got corrupt individuals actually selling large uh, bodies of water, fresh water to Western investors. And so clearly, you know, uh, this, this kind of wholesale corruption, this kind of indifference to human life, where you elevate the, do- the dollar over all other things, uh, has a, a unique, uh, has unique um, dimensions when it comes to, to Africa. And because Africa is a, a place with the largest body of fresh water, uh, clearly we can anticipate that this rush for fresh water – by the Western states, it's going to, it's only going to in, 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 in magnify. It's only going to increase. But I think having said all of this, brother Africa, I think one of the things we have to do, in which you know, it's it's going to, it's going to take billions of dollars to do it. But we have to talk seriously about water desalination. The reason why water desalination hasn't been discussed is because the people in positions of power, those corporations, are not willing to pay the price in terms of converting salt water to, 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 to liquid to potable water. Uh, their position is that as long as some water exists, uh, they should have access to that water. And so to the extent that people don't have access to water is not the corporation's responsibility. So don't ask them to pay for desalinization plants because they're not willing to pay money when they can, in fact, control the, the amount of little bit of water that's left and still make profit. So clearly, you Brother Africa, you know, a lot of these, these, these situations are, uh, can be avoided. If we simply had the will, the bottom line is that the people in positions of power simply don't care. The people, with the wealth, simply don't care. And so, if the masses of people, the working people in society, poor people in society, you know, if we don't work to, to, to fight for legitimate changes in terms of you know how policy plays itself out, but particularly with respect to water, then we shouldn't be surprised that when it comes to the difference, uh, difference between uh one's um, uh, poor folks' access to water. Or the corporation's access to growing pistachios, then clearly, in that things can exist. Then obviously, corporation's right to grow pistachios, consuming large amounts of water, is more important than the health and well-being or, or the lives of, of poor people. So clearly, we got to wake the fuck. Excuse me, we got to wake up. I mean, clearly, uh, you know, because the situation is untenable. Uh, it's not getting any better. And uh, the bottom line is that you're absolutely correct, brother Africa. We're talking about, you know, in, in, many, in many instances, you're literally going to have to fight to preserve the, the water tables, the fresh water tables that exist in these, these countries, because Western states are uh, determined to take, uh, if not by outright bribery, but the, the essentially employ military for the sole purpose of taking fresh water from, from countries around the world. So clearly, Brother Africa, there are many, many problems ahead with respect to um, access to water.
2: You know, before I go to Brother Moses, you know, Brother Hakeem, the audience, in that discussion of what's going on in um, Colorado River out west, they were talking about there was a group of heads funders out, out, out of Wall Street where they had discovered this particular land area where they wanted to create a city and divert part of the river in that area. But they found out it would be cheaper to do it that way than to try to maybe privatize certain water and bring water in. But the issue is, you know, it's the hedge fund, hedge, um the hedge funders, those in hedge fund stock trade activities, it's they who want to use this water as a commodity, could, as as a means, as a resource, to use it to make money, and they have no interest in terms of how it can impact other regions, other states, et cetera. So, again, you know, here you have Wall Street um, using, trying to use our influence to benefit a few at the expense of the masses. So I just wanted to add that piece to that. Brother yeah, Moses,
7: but you know, what's your – your...
2: yeah, go ahead, Brother Hockey. Yeah, go ahead. But,
7: yeah, real quickly, though. But you, the thing is that we have to understand that, and this is the, the paradox in which people have to begin to grasp. We talk about a capitalist economy. So we talk about hedge funds in terms of the use, the use of their clients. Uh, um, hundreds and hundreds and billions and billions of dollars for the sole purpose of corrupting society, understand that the, 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 the resources they have access to are forcing opportunity. opportunity to not only buy large chunks of land with large water uh, tables on them, uh, but they're all able to do it in such a way which is legal. And so clearly the question in terms of uh, the right for human beings to exist in, in America has to be the critical question. And if the poor people don't ask that question, then we can't realistically expect wealthy people to ask that question. And so you're absolutely right. Hedge funds are buying up. Yes, they are buying up all the land with large water, water, ta- fresh water tables because they understand that not only are they going to they're going to increase the prices of uh, uh, up water. So when you talk about taking a shower, so when normally when you may pay maybe you know $80, 90 a hundred dollars a month in terms of water costs, Dribble. So we talk about essentially we talking about maybe well from five to six hundred dollars a month just for water. So clearly the masses of people who are working people simply don't have access to those kind of funds to pay that kind of water bill. Which means that inevitably you not only can you not afford the water, but inevitably means for most most locales you get put out your home simply because your your your, your home constitutes a, a a health a health threat to those around you. So we can anticipate the level of homelessness is going to increase when the prices of water actually escalates. So clearly, brother Africa, from many perspectives, it seems to me, you know, that the, if working people don't understand the implicit threat in terms of what's going on, then you know, the bottom line is that these people in the power don't give a damn about humanity. They don't even understand what that means? There's a song by um, um, by Coin um, by Coin. Um, it's called um, um, It's called entitled Future. And he says that, um, you, know, um, you, know, he said, you know, when they ask him, um, when they tell him to repent, he, uh, his response is repent. What does that mean? I don't know what repent means. And so we're getting quickly come to a situation in society in which is, there's, this, there's this fundamental understanding in terms of what's right and what's wrong is blurred. And so in reality, that as far as the wealth is concerned, there is no, there is no, there is, there is no wrong and everything is right. So despite the kind of injustices you inflict upon the people in their minds they can be justified. And against that backdrop, the bottom line is that if you don't organize and or understand the implicit threat coming your way, then we can't risk to expect these people in positions of power and wealth to actually change their course. So clearly we got a problem in front of us, brother African. brother Alfred as you pointed out that the role that hedge funds play, uh, along along with mutual funds play in terms of this this this, 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 this a underhanded game in which they're buying uh, properties with large water tables for the sole purpose of not only propping up the, the, the value or the cost of water, but also ensuring who has access to water and who does not have access to water.
2: Thank you, Brother Haggy. Brother Moses, your response around this issue of water and future walls.
8: Yeah, this water situation is uh, getting drastic. Uh, um, Coming to a head, uh, the water defenders out west, and uh, the indigenous people—you know—trying to stop the pipeline. Et cetera, all this is part of the same issue. And you know, we ne- we have to protect Mother Earth and and the and the waters, it's, it's, uh, the fresh spring water, the fresh water supply. We you know we can't be polluting it with pipelines that are going to spill and uh and when we should be getting our fossil fuels in the first place. And so, you know, this this water thing is very, very basic, uh whether we have a right of a right or not, whether it's gonna be a privilege or a right. And right now it it seems to be more of a privilege if you can afford it, uh, uh it's become a commodity and uh the government uh, you know, no matter where you go on the face of the earth, the world is divided up. It's imperialism, and so you're on somebody's property, uh, um, and so you know we we have to face that uh, this is, it's going to be a, a struggle to get fresh water uh, and defend defend what the indigenous peoples the water rights. This is our duty at this point. My hats go off to those who are out there in the field. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Brother Moser. And Sister Eleanor, your response. Two, uh-huh. Is that real? It is yes, Sister
1: really Eleanor.
5: It is. Yes. Um, the issue of water and um, the environment, When we talk about housing being a human right, we're not talking about just a a structure. We're talking about uh, where people live. We're talking about where people make commerce. We're talking about a right to exist. And water and uh, clean air and uh, waterways are essential. In the Western United States, the folks in uh New Mexico parts of Colorado and uh west Texas depend on the water that flows down from the snow and the flash floods that come during the rainy, well, the, the 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 dry beds that fill up, they're not flat; they become flash floods during rainy season. That's the water supply. Now, air rights and water rights have been sold in this country all of the 20th century. So the reality is is that right now, the global warming is at such an extreme that uh, this United States has been experiencing droughts out west now for six years. What has been done is uh, the farmers have been allowed to expand expand their grazing area to public land and other lands. However, uh, that doesn't address the issue. And as Brother Haike said, you can very well take seawater ocean water and convert it to fresh water. Because when you, uh, when you uh, take seawater and you heat it, the condensation from the salt water itself is just pure water. But again, industry isn't set up for that. And so we need to see a major change in how business is done. So this is going to take a Uh, economic incentive that will change whether or not it's profitable to use fossil fuels, making it impossible or economically unfeasible to continue the pipeline that's coming through Wisconsin, uh, making it uh, economically impossible for someone to own the water rights and and impact thousands of people down uh, uh, south of them so no, this 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 water issue is is going to be a big issue, and it already is. Brother Haki also talked about the water bill. Water bills have gone up exponentially in the last four decades. A water bill was something uh, people used to pay a hundred bucks a year. You're talking about uh, uh, ninety bucks a month. But now it's at a point where you're paying your water bill every month or every quarter. In some uh, metropolitan areas, it's every month because it's so expensive. However, if an elderly family or someone on a fixed income fails to pay their water bill, you're right. Their homes are uh, uh, condemned and they lose their homes. Ultimately, many lose their properties. We see this as uh, uh, something that's been going on in the nation's capital, at, at least since the 90s, when there was the annexation the, the annexation of uh, black properties in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, the low-income, moderate-income homeowners were really hit hard in the 90s, so we saw predator predatory lending in the district and there were no recourse to save people's homes and we saw persons being evicted from their homes simply because they could not pay their utility bills and uh it's a reality uh in this uh this culture that is already here so we don't have to wait so the issue is how do we change it how do we change things and i think this is where we need dramatic legislative uh uh legislative action in order to global warming protect the world for all of us because as i said before in the future The global south right now in the near future is where people are going to go. So land is going to be very valuable in South America, Central America, in Africa. Not for their minerals and resources, but just to be able to have land that is habitable, that is not drought-stricken. Look at what's going on in Iowa. Look what's going on in Colorado. And uh, this is a time for someone to take judicial action in Colorado to pre- prevent because of the threat to human safety and the threat to the environment to stop any kind of water uh, rights dispute by hedge funds. That's, that's just outrageous. And that's, that's new territory. So now's the time to challenge it. I've never heard until now of a hedge fund investing in water rights and willing to deprive others of access to water in order to build some uh, complex in, in, in the Rocky Mountains. So it's time now for us to take judicial action and to see. Um, both uh, strong legislative change on a national level as well as on a state level and uh, a municipal level so that uh, water rights, air rights, the, the soil, everything is protected. We have to stop our carbon footprint now. If we don't see what's happening this summer around the world with these fires, with the floods, with the rain, when will we? if we don't realize that the coastline is creeping away, anytime you can go to a beach and you were there ten years ago, and you go now and the backyard is almost the beach itself of the house you're staying in that tells you, look this is this is a result of global warming, so we cannot, and water is a commodity. Um, uh, Many of us every day uh, drink bottled water. Well, we all need to reassess that, use filters and find other ways to clean our water. So water is already a commodity. The reality is how do we control it? And I think we can uh, uh, control and make fresh water available to everyone by just taking legislative Action that takes the economic incentive out of privatizing natural resources such as the quality of the air, water, and uh productive land
2: Thank you Sister. Thank you, Seth Eleanor. What I can do right now we're going to raise this particular question with you, with the panelists and again we welcome our audience to call in at three two three six seven nine oh eight four one. You know, many times when we look at the conditions of African people in oppressed communities, we always, you know, say we want peace. And sometimes we have things backwards or we don't have it in the correct order that will allow us to take the necessary step A to get to step B. Now I'm looking at a quote the other day by Malcolm X who uh, spoke to this question of peace. I will read this quote and I would like each one of y'all to put in the context in terms of how do we see our struggle today if we are to achieve peace and if you agree with the statement. Malcolm made a statement that you can't separate peace from freedom because no one can be at peace Unless he has his freedom, so what have we gone wrong, Brother? Brother Haki, how do you internalize this particular statement, and do you and do you agree with it? No. Let me read it back again. Let me me read it back again for my audience, for our listen audience, which is very profound. If we take a lesson for our adults, maybe we be on the correct track in terms of realizing. Maybe we need to be scrubbing for this now and other will come. He stated that you cannot separate peace from freedom because no one can be at peace unless he has his freedom. Brother Hackie respond.
7: I, I, I agree with him wholeheartedly. I agree with him wholeheartedly. Uh, it seems to me... Um that the two concepts, of peace and freedom, are, are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. I think one of the problems with our people, because of the lack of political clarity that exists in many of our minds, we tend to equate peace with, with simply getting along. But in fact, in order a true peace, then you have to have the freedom that goes along with it. Because you can get along with someone, but it, it doesn't mean that the conditions that you confront on a daily basis are going to improve. So you have to have the two working in conjunction in order to be whole. So I think, I think Malcolm X is essentially, if he's very, very correct in terms of his analysis, in terms of peace and freedom. Uh, it seems to me that one thing that I think, in particular, African people have to begin to understand is that in order to see, achieve that peace it's culminating in freedom, then you have to engage in struggle. There is no way to get around that. Simply appealing to someone in terms of to, to give you peace or freedom if it's a non-starter. Because number one, nobody's going to give you peace or freedom. It simply ain't going to happen. Nobody's going to give you that. You have to something that you have to be willing to fight for. Uh, you know, had, something you have to be willing to sacrifice for. And so, when you look at historically, look at all the revolutionaries, you know, coming out, you know, coming out, you know, out of the world in terms of fight, you know, for for, for peace and freedom, then they understood in order to achieve that peace and freedom that they had to sacrifice. And one of the things that make them make them such, you know, just you know, heroic figures. It's because they understand, you know, that simply, you know, appealing to a system in terms of what is proper doesn't always resonate with that system. Particularly when you talk about a capitalist system where it has no concept in terms of right and wrong. In the context of capitalism, everything's expedient. It's not about right and wrong. It's whatever you can get away with. If you can get away with it, it's right. <laughs> you know, if you, if you have to impoverish millions of people in order to make a dollar, then you know what? That's right. The question in terms of the, the the fundamental inequality, the fundamental suffering imposed on people uh, because of something beyond their control, it's never an issue for those positions of power. So it seems to me that our people have to understand this, this nonsense. Until we we just appeal to people in particular. We just tell we just appeal the politicians. You know, uh, you know, if you know, why don't you take this? Why don't you take this situation? And run with it. Why don't you advocate for us because this is good to bring this is going to bring about peace and freedom? Well, first of all, you we have to understand that no no politician is going to advocate anything that's going to bring about peace and freedom. Because keep in mind, politicians are not revolutionaries. Politicians are just that they're politicians. Their job is to play within the context of the system. It's not to challenge the system. So anytime you tell politicians that I want you to advocate or take a position that challenges the system it's, 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 a, it's a proposition that they was they reject. They're not going to do that. Some of them may be very good in terms of giving the perception that in fact that they're alluding to you know maybe changing the system, but they're not going to go overboard in terms of their um, enunciation of what what has to change in order to bring about freedom and, and freedom, peace and freedom, because they understand if they really did that they'd be out of office. Those wealthy people who support them for their candidacy would not support them, and so those wealthy people. So those people in, in Congress, those people who are just in position of power, those politicians who depend on the wealthy for funding, they're not going to jeopardize their self-interest, for the interests of humanity. So the masses of people got to understand that if you really want peace and freedom, it's to come upon you, the masses of people, working people, poor people, to, to work together in order to bring about this, this, this transformation. It's not going to happen simply by appeasing or simply to, uh, attempting to appease politicians to take a stand with respect to uh, the, the necessity, you know, necessity of peace and freedom. It's simply not going to happen. So it's a common upon the people to actually bring it about. Malcolm X is absolutely correct, as always.
2: Brother Moses, you can't separate peace from freedom because no one can be at peace unless he has the freedom, according to Brother Malcolm X. Your position on that, Brother Moses. Talk to us.
8: Well, first of all, let's, let's get this freedom thing squared away. Um, this abstract freedom. This freedom is concrete. Freedom is always kind of just Freedom to do something and freedom from something happening to you. More well, freedom to and freedom from. Uh, so it's very concrete. And so, um, you know, peace. You know, peace. Is, you know, with uh, peace requires there to be justice. I mean, freedom and justice go together. And uh, um, without justice, there can be there can be no peace. Uh, um, uh, so, you know, the correct, uh, correct uh, relationship of people to each other, um, the people united will never be defeated, but the correct relationship of people to each other ensures freedom and ensures peace and ensures justice uh, as long as the people are conscious and take up the struggle and, and, uh, and do what is necessary in order to promote general welfare of the people. Thank you.
2: Come to you, Sister Eleanor, you heard the statement about Malcolm X. As he talked about the relationship between peace and freedom, he stated that you can't separate peace from freedom because no one can be at peace unless he has the freedom. Your response to that statement, Sister Eleanor? It's
5: uh, absolutely correct. Um, oftentimes people may seem placid or they may, uh, well, they may seem um, tranquil, but that doesn't represent peace. Uh, peace, as Brother Robert said, is uh, freedom from something and freedom to do some things. And certainly, um, as Bob Molly also says, a hungry man is an angry man where well, you cannot have peace without true democracy. And now, as uh, Brother Hakeem talked about uh, politicians, well, some politicians, and in some places, you see uh, multi-party systems, and you see workers' parties, you see uh, Marxists, you see environmental parties. so uh, some politicians are uh, steadfast, and what we need to see, and there are many advocates for, and the ones on the Hill seem not to be backing it right now, not in the, just, not in the United States and Washington, D.C., not, uh, not enough, but I think there's a building of, of persons that uh, want to see true um, campaign finance change in this country because uh, there are only two people in this country that really don't vote that I found, and this is with a limited survey. If you ever get a voter register it, it tells you when everyone voted, uh, what elections they voted in, and which ones they didn't. It doesn't tell you who they voted for, but it lets you see who the voting folks are. Rich people, I found, don't need to vote. Because as Brother Akeem said, they can just call somebody and get everything done. Poor people don't vote because they don't have any confidence in the system to support what's good for the people, what's good for Mother Earth, what's good for the future of the nation. So what we need is serious uh, legislative reform that would change uh, campaign finance laws in this country. Because one thing we did and it has been materialized before our eyes in this country in 2020 was we saw an incredible voter turnout that changed the direction of this country we as many nations were under the dictatorship of a totalitarianist uh, called Donald Trump he was just another Bolsonaro another Moby just another uh, neo-fascist uh, in, the, in the he was a neo-fascist in the White House, he was something horrific but the people turned that around so these um, 18 states that have these new voter suppression laws, they put them in place, not because of voter fraud but simply because they didn't want those people to have a, bo- a voice as an electorate in this country so uh, that's a freedom, the freedom to vote. I believe the 5th or 6th of August is when Lyndon Vane Johnson signed that Voters' Rights Act into law in 1965. He didn't do it because he wanted to. It was because it was literally the will of the people, the will of the nation. What well, we saw in 2020, something uh, I don't think we've seen as, uh, it was grander than the, and it seemed to be more profound than the Vietnam War movement or the civil, uh, civil Rights Movement. It affected not only the ideas and the goals of us in the United States, but people around the world stood in solidarity with African Americans. Palestinians felt proud to say that, yes, we face apartheid, and we're staring it down just as African-Americans stare down racism in the United States. So we see that the people have, have the power to change things. So there can't be any peace where, where there's no justice. And, and so Malcolm X was more than correct, but we have an opportunity to turn things around by simply making sure that there are legislative changes that affect voter uh, campaign financing. And we have two bills on the Hill, the John Lewis bill, and there's another, that if they were passed, we'd have something shaken up to repress these 18 states, these legislatures that are taking away the right of the people to vote in this United States. There's not a we don't need more ID to vote. We don't need a poll tax for the poor. That's that's the poll tax. We don't need that. What we need is a voter registration card and folks to get people out to the polls and change things in this country. And we did in twenty twenty. Now, we're on a roll right now. We need to keep that going. But Malcolm X was more than correct, that if there, we, if without justice, there can be no peace. And people, when, when they may appear to be uh, okay, but it has a physical, a psychological, it has a physiological impact on people being oppressed. We have discussed in recent shows the impact of uh, uh, heat, hot spots in cities because of too much concrete, not enough trees, not enough green space. So this has a physiological impact on the residents, on their health. It affects their life expectancy. Well, wherever there's a lack of justice, uh, there is no peace. And uh, Malcolm X said it loud and clear. So I completely concur with his with that quote, Brother Africa.
2: Thank you, sister Eleanor. One of the things I would like to just brief respond to one of your statements, Sister Eleanor, is that many people may agree with you you're right. We may be on a road, but on the road too well. That's a fundamental issue. But anyway, Brother Afton we're gonna bring him in and We'd like to get your take on when we look at this whole issue of people's struggle and movements, and sometimes we put certain things ahead of the cut. Now, I'm looking at the statement of the week and by Malcolm X, where he stated you can't separate peace from freedom because no one can be at peace unless they have his freedom. What do you make of that statement? How do you contextualize it in today's struggle, Brother Anthony?
10: Uh, I think his his statement is correct. Um, You know, uh, uh, there cannot be true peace without freedom. And that is true because um, people that are denied uh, peace cannot exist where people are denied the ability to develop to their fullest human potential. And uh, and that's critical for true freedom, in which every uh, and freedom is um, can only exist in a community where every human being has the, the ability to develop to his or her fullest potential, whatever that may be. And uh, and uh, you know and uh, and in this society where you have millions of people incarcerated, you have millions of people unemployed or underemployed, and uh, you know uh, and uh, oppression runs rampant. You know you 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 you, you don't have a genuine peace in this society or worldwide, for that matter. Only the only place where, uh, where where you know where peace exists, and is very precarious, is in the uh, in, is uh, are in societies that are trying to build socialism, and they're under attack by the forces of imperialism. So uh, so we got a uh, there's a lot of work that 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 needs to be done. And uh, you know, and uh, we can't afford to rest on the on on our laurels or on the, comp, uh, the accomplishments of our ancestors. We've got to you, you know uh, keep uh, keep on pressing as the as the song goes, and we have to keep struggling and organizing our people uh, for freedom and to save the planet, ultimately.
2: Thank you, Brother Anthony, what we're going to do right now, panelists and our listening audience. We definitely want you to weigh in on this upcoming um, dissertation that's coming up real shortly, by it was Snowden. He did a piece on how the cell phones spies on you, how the cell phone, that's right, your cell phone is act as a spy. And we're doing this piece right now because we want to raise people's consciousness, particularly those in the movement, around the whole issue of how do we use various tools as a means for our liberation. Your tools are just like anything else. They are very dialectical. They can be used as the tool for you or be it can be used as the tool against you. And when you listen to this presentation, we would like to have a discussion with our panelists as well as you in terms of Having a better understanding of when we use these tools, in this case, we're talking about the cell phone, how to be the most effective with it, and also to understand the, the problems and the limitations that it may cause as it relates to us marching down the road towards our liberation. Well, so for the next 15 minutes or so, I want you to please engage in this particular discussion, and we come back, panelists, we'd like to have your point of view of what you have just listened to. Okay, here go Ed Snowden. issue the
11: CFOs? And how it can be used as a tool to spell you.
3: <laughs> the Joe Rogan experience.
11: Um, are you aware at all of the current state of surveillance and what if anything has changed since your revelations?
4: Yeah, I mean the the big thing that's changed um since I was uh in in in, in twenty thirteen is now it's mobile first, everything. Um, Mobile was still a a big deal, right? Um, And the intelligence community was very much grappling uh, to to get its hands around it and to deal with it. Um, But now people are much less likely to use a laptop than use a desktop than than use, you know, God, any kind of wired phone um, than they are to use a smartphone. Uh, And both uh, Apple and Android devices, unfortunately, uh, are not especially good in uh, protecting your privacy. Think right now. Um, you got a smartphone, right? You you might be listening to this (laughs) on a train somewhere in in traffic right now. Um, Or or you, Joe, right now. you you got a phone somewhere in the room, right? Uh, The phone is turned off, or at least the screen is turned off. It's sitting there. It's powered on. And if somebody sends you a message the screen blinks to life, how does that happen? Right? Uh, how is it that if someone from any corner of the earth uh, dials a number, your phone rings and nobody else's rings? How is it that you can dial anybody else's number and only their phone rings? Right? Uh, every smartphone, every phone at all, uh, is constantly connected uh, to the nearest cellular tower. Um, Every phone, even when the screen is off, you think it's doing nothing, you can't see it because radio frequency emissions are invisible. Um, It's screaming in the air, saying, here I am, here I am. Here is my uh, IMEI, I think it's uh, Individual Manufacturers Equipment Identity, uh, and IMEI, uh, Individual uh, Manufacturers um, Subscriber Identity. I I could be wrong on the the breakout there, but the the acronyms are uh, the IMEI and the IMSI, and you can search for these things. They're two globally unique identifiers that only exist anywhere in the world uh, in one place, right? This makes your phone different than all the other phones. Uh, The IMEI is burned into the handset of your phone. No matter what SIM card you change to, it's always gonna be the same, and it's always gonna be telling the phone network it's this physical handset. The IMEI, Uh, is in your SIM card, right? And this is what holds your phone number, right? It's basically the key, the right to use that phone number. And so your phone is sitting there doing nothing, you think, uh, but it's constantly shouting and saying, I'm here. Who is closest to me? That's a cell phone tower. And every cell phone tower with its big ears uh, is listening for these little cries for help uh, and going, all right, I see Joe Rogan's phone, I see Jamie's phone, I see all these phones uh, that are here right now, and it compares notes uh, with the other uh, network towers, and your smartphone compares notes with them, to go, who do I hear the loudest? And who you hear uh, the loudest is a proxy for uh, proximity, for closeness, distance, right? They go, whoever I hear more loudly than anybody else, that's close to me. So you're gonna be bound to this cell phone tower and that cell phone tower is gonna to make a note, a permanent record uh, saying this phone, uh, this phone handset with this phone number at this time was connected to me, right? And based on your phone handset and your phone number, uh, they can get your identity, right? Um, because you pay for this stuff with your credit card and everything like that. Uh, and even if you don't, right, it's still active at your house uh, overnight. It's still active, you know, on your nightstand when you're sleeping. It's still whatever. Uh, the movements of your phone are the movements of you as a person, and those are often uh, quite le- uniquely identifying. It goes to your home. It goes to your workplace. Uh, other people don't have it. Sorry. Um, and anyway, it's constantly shouting this out, and then it compares notes with the other parts of the network. And when somebody is trying to get to a phone, It compares notes, uh, the network compares notes to go, where is this phone with this phone number in the world right now? And to that cell phone tower that is closest to that phone, it sends out a signal saying, we have a call for you. Make your phone start ringing so your owner can answer it. And then it connects it across this whole path. But what this means is that whenever you're carrying a phone, whenever the phone is turned on, uh, there's a record of your presence at that place that is being made and created by companies. It does not need to be kept forever, and in fact there's no good argument for it to be kept forever, but these companies see that as valuable information, right? This is the whole big data problem that we're running into, and all this uh, information that used to be ephemeral, right? Where were you when you were eight years old, you know? Um, where did you go after you had a bad breakup? You know, who'd you spend the night with? Who'd you call after? All this information used to be ephemeral, meaning it disappeared, right, like like the morning dew. It would be gone. No one would remember it. But now these things are stored. Now these things are saved, it doesn't matter whether you're doing anything wrong. It doesn't matter whether you're the most ordinary person uh, on earth, uh, because that's how bulk collection, which is the government's euphemism for mass surveillance, works. They simply collect it all in advance in hopes that one day it will become useful. And that was just talking about how you connect to the phone network. That's not talking about all those apps on your phone that are contacting the network even more frequently, right? Uh, how do you get a text message notification? How do you get an email notification? How is it the Facebook knows where you're at? You know, all of these things, these analytics, uh, They are trying to keep track through location services on your phone, through GPS, through even just what wireless access points you're connected to because there's a global constantly updated map. There's actually many of them of wireless access points in the world because just like we talked about, every phone has a unique identifier that's globally unique. Uh, Every wireless access point in the world, right, your your cable modem at home, uh, whether it's in your laptop, every device that has a radio modem has a globally unique identifier in it. And uh, this is a standard term, you can look it up. Uh, And these things can be mapped when they're broadcasting in the air, because again, like your phone says to the cell phone tower, I have this identifier. The cell phone tower responds and says, I have this identifier. And anybody who's listening, uh, they can write these things down. And all those Google Street View cars that go back and forth, right? they're keeping notes uh, on whose uh, Wi-Fi is active on this block, right? And then they build a new giant map, so even if you have GPS turned off, right, uh, as long as you connect to Wi-Fi, those apps can go, well, I'm connected to Joe's Wi-Fi, but I can also see his neighbor's Wi-Fi here, and the other one in this apartment over here, and the other one in the apartment here, and you should only be able to hear those four globally unique Wi-Fi access points from these points in physical space, right? The intersection in between the spreads, the domes, of all those uh, wireless access points. And it's a proxy for location. And it just goes on and on and on. We could talk about this for four more hours. We don't have that kind of time. Can I ask you this? Um, Is
11: there a way to mitigate any of this personally? I I mean,
4: shutting your phone off doesn't even work, right? Well, so it 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 does in in a way. It's yes and no. Um, the thing with shutting your phone off that is a risk is, how do you know your phone's actually turned off? Um, it used to be uh, when I was in Geneva, for example, uh, working for the CIA. Um, we would all carry like drug dealer phones. Uh, you know, the old smartphones, uh, or sorry, old dumb phones. They're not smartphones, uh, and the reason why was just because they had removable, the batteries. removable backs yeah. where you could take the battery out, right? right? And the one beautiful thing about technology is if there's no electricity in it, right? if there's no go juice uh, available to it, if there's no battery connected to it, it's not sending anything because you have to get power from somewhere. You have to have power in order to do work. Um, but now your phones are all sealed, right? You can't take the batteries out. so. There are potential ways that you can hack a phone where it appears to be off, but it's not actually off. It's just pretending to be off, whereas in fact, it's still listening in and doing all this stuff. But for the average person, that doesn't apply, right? And I gotta tell you guys, they've been chasing me all over the place. I don't worry about that stuff, right? Um, And it's because if they're applying that level of effort to me, uh, they'll probably get the same information through other routes. Um, I am as careful as I can, and I I use things like Faraday cages, I turn devices off. But if they're actually uh, manipulating the way devices display, um, it's just too great a level of effort, even for someone like me, to keep that up on a constant basis. Also, um, if they get me, I I only trust phones so much. So there's only so much they can derive from the compromise. And this is how operational security works. Um, You think about what are the realistic threats that you're facing? That you're trying to mitigate. And the mitigation that you're trying to do is what would be the loss, what would be the damage done to you uh, if this stuff was exploited. Much more realistic than worrying about these things that I call voodoo hacks, right, which are like next level stuff. And actually just a shout out for those of your readers who are interested in this stuff. Um, I wrote a paper on this specific problem. How do you know when a phone is actually off? How do you know when it's actually not spying on you? Uh, with a brilliant, brilliant guy named uh, Andrew Bunny Huang. Uh, he's an MIT PhD in, I, I think, electrical engineering. Um, uh, called the Introspection Engine. Uh, it was published in the Journal of Open Engineering. You can find it online. Um, and it'll go as deep down in the weeds, I promise you, as you want. We take an iPhone 6. Uh, this was back when it was fairly new. Uh, and we modified it so we could actually. Uh, not trust the device uh, to report its own state, but physically monitor its state to see if it's spying on you. But for average people, right, uh, this academic. Uh, y- that's not your primary threat. Your primary threats are these bulk collection programs. Your primary threat is the fact that your phone is constantly squawking to these cell phone towers that's doing all of these things because we leave our phones in a state that is constantly on. You're constantly connected, right? Uh, Airplane mode uh, doesn't even turn off Wi-Fi, really, anymore. It just turns off the cellular modem. Um, But the whole idea is we need to identify the problem. And the central problem with smartphone use today is you have no idea what the hell it's doing at any given time. Like, the phone has the screen off. You don't know what it's connected to. You don't know how frequently it's doing it. Uh, Apple uh, and iOS, unfortunately, makes it impossible to see uh, what kind of network connections are constantly made on the device and to intermediate them, going, I don't want Facebook to be able to talk right now. You know, I don't want Google to be able to talk right now. I just want my uh, secure messenger app to be able to talk. Uh, I just want my weather app to be able to talk, but I just checked my weather and now I'm done with it, so I don't want that to be able to talk anymore. And we need to be able to make these intelligent decisions Uh, on not just an app by app basis, but a connection by connection basis, right? You want, let's say you use Facebook, because you know, for whatever judgment we have, a lot of people might do it. You want it to be able to connect to Facebook's content servers. Uh, You want to be able to message a friend, you want to be able to download a photograph or whatever, but you don't want it to be able to talk to an ad server. You don't want it to talk to an analytics server that, that's monitoring your behavior, right? You don't want it to talk to all these third-party things because Facebook crams their garbage uh, into almost every app that you download, and you don't even know what's happening because you can't see it, right? And this is the problem with the data collection use today is there is an industry that is built on keeping this invisible. Uh, and what we need to do is we need to make the activities of uh, our devices, whether it's a phone, whether it's a computer or whatever, uh, more visible and understandable to the average person, and then give them control over it. So, like, if you could see your phone right now, and at the very center of it is a little green icon that's your, you know, handset, or it's a picture of your face, whatever, and then you see all these little spokes coming off of it. That's every app that your phone is talking to right now, or every app that is active on your phone right now, and all the hosts that it's connecting to. And you can see right now Once every three seconds, your phone is checking into Facebook and you could just poke that app and then boom, it's not talking to Facebook anymore. Facebook's not allowed. Facebook's (laughs) speaking privileges have been revoked, right? You would do that. We would all do that. If there was a button on your phone that said, do what I want, but not spy on me, you would press that button, right? That button does not exist right now. And both Google and Apple, unfortunately, Apple's a lot better at this than Google. But uh, neither of them allow that button to exist. In fact, they actively interfere with it because they say it's a security risk. And from a particular perspective, they they actually aren't wrong there. Um, But it's not enough to go, You know, we have to lock that capability off from people because we don't trust they would make the right decisions. We think it's too complicated for people to do this. We think there's too many connections being made. Well, that is actually a confession of the problem right there. If you think people can't understand it, if you think there are too many communications happening, if you think there's too much complexity in there, it needs to be simplified. Just like the president can't control everything like that, if you have to be the president of the phone and the phone is as complex as the United States government, we have a problem, guys. Uh, This should be a much more simple process. It should be obvious, and the fact that it's not, And the fact that we read story after story, year after year saying all your data's been breached here, uh, this company's spying on you here, this company's manipulating your purchases or your search results or they're hiding these things from your timeline uh, or they're influencing you or manipulating you in all of these different ways, that happens as a result of a single uh, problem. And that problem is an inequality of available information. They can see everything about you, they can see everything about what your device is doing, and they can do whatever they want with your device. You, on the other hand, owned the device. Well, rather, you paid for the device. But increasingly, these corporations own it. Increasingly, these governments own it. And increasingly, we are living in a world where we do all the work, right? (laughs) We pay all the taxes, we pay all the costs, uh, but we own less. And And nobody understands this better than the youngest generation.
11: Well, it seems like our data became a commodity before we understood what it was. It became this thing that's insanely valuable to Google and Facebook and all these social media platforms. Before we understood what we were giving up, they were making billions of dollars. And then once that money is being earned and once everyone's accustomed to the situation, it's very difficult to pull the reins back. It's very difficult to turn that horse around precisely because the money then becomes power right. right the information then becomes influence that also seems to be the uh, and, same and, yeah. sort of situation that would happen with these mass surveillance states once they have the <laughs> access it's going to be incredibly difficult for them to relinquish that
4: right yeah no you're you're exactly correct and this is the the subject of the book i mean this is this is the permanent record and this is where it came from this is how it came to exist um, the story of our lifetimes is how intentionally, by design, uh, a number of institutions, uh, both governmental and corporate, uh, realized it was in their mutual interest to conceal their data collection activities, to increase uh, the breadth and depth of their sensor networks that were uh, sort of spread out through society. Remember, back in the day, intelligence collection uh, in the United States, even at SIGIN, used to mean sending an FBI agent, right, to put alligator clips on an embassy building, or, or sending in a, somebody disguised as, as a workman, uh, and they put a bug in a building, or they built a satellite uh, listening site, right? We, we call these foreign sat, or foreign satellite collection. we out in the desert somewhere. They, they built a big uh, parabolic collector. Um, And it's just listening to satellite emissions, right? But these satellite emissions, these satellite links, were owned by militaries. They were exclusive to governments, right? It wasn't affecting everybody broadly. All surveillance was targeted because it had to be. What changed with technology is that surveillance could now become indiscriminate. It could become uh, dragnet. It could become bulk election, which should become one of the dirtiest phrases in the language, uh, if we have any kind of decency. Uh, But we were intentionally, um, this was intentionally concealed from us, right? Uh, The government did it. They used classification. Um, Companies did it. Uh, They intentionally didn't talk about it. They denied uh, these things were going. They they said... uh, you agreed to this, and you didn't agree to nothing like this. I'm, I'm sorry, right? right? They go, we put that terms of service page up, and, and you click that. You clicked the button that said, I agree, because you were trying to open an account so you could talk to your friends. You were trying to get driving directions. You were trying to get an email account. You weren't trying to agree to some 600-page legal form uh, that even if you read, you wouldn't understand. And it doesn't matter even if you did understand because one of the very first paragraphs in it said, this agreement can be changed at any time unilaterally without your consent by the company, right? Uh, They have built a legal paradigm that presumes records collected about us do not belong to us. This is uh, sort of one of the core principles on which mass surveillance from the government's perspective in the United States is legal. And you have to understand that all the stuff we talked about today, the government says everything they do is legal, right? And, and they go, so it's fine. Our perspective of the public should be, well, that's actually the problem, because this isn't okay. The scandal isn't how they're breaking the law. The scandal is that they don't have to break the law. And the way they say they're not breaking the law is something called the third party doctrine. Now, third party doctrine is a, um, legal principle derived from a case in, I believe, the 1970s uh, called Smith versus Maryland. Um, and Smith was this knucklehead uh, who was harassing this lady, making uh, phone calls uh, to her house. Uh, and when she would pick up, he'd just, I don't know, sit there heavy breathing, whatever, like a classic creeper. Um, and, you know, it was terrifying, this poor lady. So she called the cops, Uh, And says, one day I got one of these phone calls, and then I see this car creeping past my house on the street, and she got a a license plate number. So she goes to the cops, and she goes, is this the guy? And the cops, again, they're they're trying to do a good thing here. Uh, They look up his uh, license plate number, uh, and they find out where this guy is, and then they go, well, what phone number is registered to that house? And they go to the phone company, and they say, can you give us this record? And the phone company says, yeah, sure. And it's the guy. The cops got their man, right? Uh, so they go arrest this guy and then in court, uh, his lawyer brings all this stuff up and they go, um, you did this without a warrant. Uh, that was, sorry, that was that was the, the, the problem was, they went to the phone company and they got the records without a warrant. They just asked for it or they subpoenaed it, right? Some lower standard of legal review. And the company gave it to them and they got the guy, they marched him off to jail. Uh, And they could have gotten a warrant, right? But it was just expedience. They just didn't want to take the time. The small town cops, you can understand how it happens. They know the guy's a creeper. They just want to get him off to jail. Um, And so they made a mistake, but the government doesn't want to let it go. They fight on this. And they go, uh, it wasn't actually, they weren't his records. And so because they didn't belong to him, he didn't have a Fourth Amendment right to demand a warrant be issued for them, they were the company's records, and the company provided them voluntarily, and hence no warrant was required because you can give whatever you want without a warrant as long as it's yours. Now, here's the problem. The government extrapolated uh, a principle in a single case of a single known suspected criminal who had, they had real good reasons uh, to spe- suspect was their guy. Um, and use that to go to a company and get records from them, and establish a precedent that these records don't belong to the guy, uh, they belong to the company. And then they said, well, if one person doesn't have a Fourth Amendment interest in records held by a company, no one does. And so the company then has absolute proprietary ownership of all of these records about all of our lives. And remember, this is back in the 1970s. You know, the internet hardly exists in, in these kind of contexts. Smartphones you know, don't exist. Modern society, modern communications don't exist. This is the very beginning of the technological era. Uh, and flash forward now 40 years, uh, and they are still relying on this precedent about this one you know, pervy creeper to go, nobody has a privacy right for anything that's held by a company. And so long as they do that, companies are going to be extraordinarily powerful uh, and they're going to be extraordinarily abusive. And this is something that people don't get. They go, oh, well, it's data collection, right? They're exploiting data. Uh, This is data about human lives. Uh, It it is data about people. These records are are about you. It's not data that's being exploited. Uh, It's people that are being exploited. It's not um, data that's being manipulated. It's you that's being uh, manipulated. And this this is, uh, this is something that I think a lot of people are beginning to understand. Now the problem is the companies and the governments are still pretending they don't understand or, or disagreeing with this. And this reminds me of something that uh, one of my old friends, uh, John Perry Barlow, um, who served with me uh, at the Freedom of the Press Foundation. I'm the president of the board. Uh, used to say to me, um, which is uh, you can't awaken someone who's pretending to be asleep.
2: <laughs> you just listened to Edward Snowden as he talk about this question of cell phones and how it can be used as a tool to monitor you and spy upon your activities. We, With our panelists today, what we want to do is have some kind of discussion based upon this recent information in terms of what can we extrapolate from this so we can be a lot more conscious about not only how we use this particular tool, i.e. the cell phone, but how it can be used, we can use it positively, as well as how it can be used as a tool negatively. What are we giving up? So start with you, Brother Haki, what would you have extrapolated by hearing this particular discussion just now?
7: Well, I'm not sure, Brother Africa, that's a great deal you can extrapolate. I think it, it, it is what it is. Um, when we talk about mass surveillance, uh, aside from the monitor aspect in terms of having access to all of this information, which equates to, which equates to money, uh, the ability to know where everybody is and what they're doing uh, is of great significance uh, to the government. So no one should be surprised that as technology innovates, that one of the things that exponentially is this notion in terms of ability to actually spy on people. And so I think this notion in terms of the phone spying on you, I think shouldn't be new to anybody. I mean anybody who follow uh, the inner uh, imaginations of capitalism should understand you know, that this, this tendency in terms of uh, surveillance is, is certainly nothing new. It's certainly something that uh, the bread and butter, you know, of a capitalist society. So no one should be surprised in terms of the capability of cell phones is you. As a matter of fact, one of the things I do in terms of, you know, if I want um, some information pertaining to something particular, like I study a lot of music, and so what happens is I will talk about, for instance, I will talk about uh, I want to play, um, play the pentatonic, pentatonic scale uh um, in 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 a, in a key of d right I'll say that to the phone when it's not on and uh and the next day I will get uh emails I would get all kind of information pertaining to the pentatonic scale in a key of e c and b and so forth and so on so I don't think anybody should be surprised in terms of you know uh exactly you know uh, the propensity in terms of using the velum for that purpose. But I will say this, Brother Africa, I think this is important that that, that people get this. Um, uh, Recently, we talked about uh, the Pegasus uh, spyware that was introduced by the the Zionist regime of Israel. And supposedly the the spyware supposedly was to entrap so-called terrorists. But it turned out the spyware was used against journalists, activists, and political leaders. Clearly, uh, you know, there is a a market uh, among those musicians of power for this kind of technology. So if we think for one second, you know, that this technology is going to disappear, then we're sadly mistaken. The bottom line is it's here to stay, and unless people are willing to pay the ultimate price in terms of real sacrifice, in terms of overcoming, you know, these systematic uh, injustices. Or the bottom line is that the people who benefit from this stuff aren't going to change course, and that's simply not going to happen. Uh, you know, and also, brother, in terms of the third, the third party doctrine, I think is very interesting. Because one of the things I, I think at this point, I think people begin to understand that when we talk about in terms of the the, the ever-increasing uh, rights of corporations to the detriment of, 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 of our, our human rights, I think more people begin to understand that, that corporations have an ornament, um, an ornament about amount of power in terms of their operations. How often do you buy something that's effective and you try to sue it and tell you, know we're not going to pay you, and then you attempt to appeal that, uh, to your To your bank, to your bank, and your bank said, so "Well, nothing we can do." Well, the bank position is that we're with that with that corporation because we get our fees from that corporation. So, therefore, you being screwed is of no, uh, insignificance; it's no important to us. And so, you begin to understand the might of these corporations, and that's something that's uh, something that's that's ongoing. Uh, you know, recently I had an opportunity to talk to an older brother, and he was upset because he put a thousand dollars in the bank, and he was talking about. Um, the fact that they won't give him his money. They tell him he got to wait 12 days in order to get his money. They, what they would do is give him 100 dollars toward, toward $20,000 that he put into his bank account. And he wanted to know why he couldn't get all of his money. And I'm trying to explain to him. The brother was quite upset. He was an older brother, and he was quite upset. And I'm trying to explain to him, brother, I understand your, 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 your dilemma, and I understand how upset you are, because on a, on a principal level, what's happening is unfair. But let me explain something to you in terms of how these banks operate. When you or I put our money into these banks, you know what? We don't own the deposits, the, the money. We don't own it. They own it. It's a proprietary, proprietary, proprietary right uh, that belongs to corporations. They have a unilateral right to do whatever they want, whenever they want, with your proceeds. So when we talk about spying on people in terms of it, so when you talk about a, a, a for instance, uh, a, a, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're being spied on by your telephone, your cell phone. Well, the bottom line is that, well since you know uh, you know um, the, 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 the the airwaves uh, the, um, the that carry the signals uh, you know, to this phone is not owned by you, it's owned by the corporations. So the proprietary rights actually own belongs to the corporations. So the mere fact that you brought the phone or the mere fact you know that you have some presumed right in terms of uh, access to some kind of privacy, uh, the bottom line is that that is not simply the case, and so when, when, so when the state says that corporations have all the rights, then your right to be spied upon is a given. So no one should be surprised in terms of when he talks about the proprietary rights of corporations, no one should be surprised, and this is ongoing, and this is actually elevating, this is actually increasing. So unless people understand the necessity in terms of really fighting and really understand what the issues are, and just go to something that Sister Eleanor said, and this is why it's important. And one of the things, when we talk about and not to be the dead horse, but one of the things when we talk about in terms of uh, the significance in terms of politicians, we got to understand one thing very very clearly. Politicians are beholden to the powerful. Politicians, like anyone else, also are incapable of being intimidated. Do you think for one second a politician who, against the backdrop of of, of, of being spied on, you know, by intelligence agencies? Is going to stick his or her neck out for the masses of people, it ain't going to happen. So, so in terms, of, so so realistically speaking, you know, our our desire to see you know um, these politicians stand up on our behalf, uh, the rally is something quite different. That simply, simply, simply doesn't happen simply because politicians, being human, also are intimidated or frightened by intelligence services. So clearly, Brother, uh, for what Stone was saying is I I don't think it should be new to anybody, Brother Africa. I think that by this point in time, if people don't understand they're being spied upon, I don't know what to say. You know, and i simply close with that.
2: Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, what do you take from this recent information about Stone?
10: what i would uh what i would say uh about this is that over reliance on any one form of technology or method of communication is dangerous and uh that's the main takeaway i i got from that presentation that uh that we have to def- uh In addition to getting better organized, we have to communicate in more than one way and more than one level. And and, uh, you can't, you know, rely upon cell phones exclusively for your communication. They're convenient uh they hold a lot of uh the that that uh, you know their- great way of getting information out quickly but uh but they should supplement other methods methods of communication and not be your only method of getting the word out uh because one of the the takeaways from this uh that thing is that these methods these methods of communication are privately controlled which means they're subject to being manipulated any way in which the owners of these uh of these methods of control choose to do so uh so even uh you know uh you, you know uh you know so we have to master technology uh, to the extent that we can teach uh, that that, that uh, we can teach it to our uh, to our people, so that they understand it as well. But any technology has its limitations, and uh, one glaring example of that is the fact that cell phones are on virtually all the time. And, uh, you know, and that – and uh, as, uh, you know, Snowden's presentation pointed out, that could work to your disadvantage at times. Thank you, Brother
2: Anthony. Brother Moses, what you say from the information from Snowden as it relates to the use of cell phones? While
8: we're waiting for uh, motion um, yeah, um, I, I think you know that there's a lot of issues involved in this um, this this um, telephone industry thing. Uh, Snowden obviously is royal burst on it, having been worked I think at at the National Security Administration or something before he before he uh, defected. Uh, so he's very very up on on what the capacities of of these. These instruments can do. Um, I I agree with Brother Anthony. We have to be concerned about uh, reliability on one particular if, if on one particular form of communication. Uh, uh, I but I do know the people united would never be defeated, and so I have faith in, in, in us to be able to overcome these little obstacles. And I'll leave it right there. Thank you.
2: Thank you, brother Moses. Let's go to Eleanor. Eleanor, you take. I want to see if you. Well,
5: I I I see um, from brother Snowden what what he said is we need to educate ourselves. But and I agree with brother Hakeem and uh, brother Anthony. The reality is that um, I have been aware of these phones and uh, in that, uh, as Brother Hakeem said, I thought my phone was off and I've been in settings where when suddenly no one's around and no one's in the room, the phone tells me that it's done research and found this data. And I'm going, well, I didn't ask it to find anything. But that's not the real issue. The real issue is the right to privacy. Now, we can take this tracking information out of these phones. I think that that can be done. I think there has to be legal ramifications for not doing so. As uh, Brother Hakeem mentioned, uh, practices of of the Israeli company, um, it was an acronym, NSO, and what it had done and what Amnesty International found had happened where uh, it took several phones and uh, uh, of the 67 or so phones that it it used to see whether or not they had been hacked by this preface, I'm, I'm pronouncing it wrong, the, the mythological word, I'm sorry. But uh, it found that 37 had been hacked. They also found that a freelance journalist in Mexico just before the election was murdered at a car wash, sleeping in a hammock, out of sight, and he was trying to hide because he knew his life was being threatened. And we, we've we seen what this kind of uh, technology is doing when we looked at the list of players in that previous article, like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain. Turkey, you know, Togo, Rwanda, really? Uh, The United Arab Emirates, and the list goes on. What shocked me on that list was France and Hungary. Well, not Hungary, but France kind of shocked me. But uh, the bottom line is, is that some kind of changes have to be Made The technology has advanced at such a rapid rate until legislatively and socially, people hadn't been able to keep up with it. And I run into people frequently who say to me, I say, well, you know, uh, the phone is is listening to everything you say or it's tracking you. And they say, well, I don't have anything to hide. Well, where did it say that we want to be uh ants on the ant farm to be being viewed by big brother nowhere so i think that there needs to be again this i see it as a legislative issue i see as brother Akeem said he talked about business well i've seen business in in recent decades recent years have a greater influence Where did Bill Gates get to be at the table with the U.S. Congress to discuss how we're going to address global warming? Why he's flying around in a private jet talking about what kind of fuel he's using. Really not qualified to speak. So we need to really separate state, the government, from our millionaires just as we separate the church. From our, now they're not called millionaires anymore. They're billionaires and trillionaires. We need to separate these folks from the government. But these devices have come online, and, and their growth and use grew exponentially overnight, and we weren't prepared legislatively to address these issues. And there are many issues that we need to address legislatively right now, and technology is one. The other, for example, is abortion rights. I hear people always spouting they're into abortion rights. No, they're not, because only middle-class women can have abortions, because if you're on any type of government or state insurance, your right to an abortion is nil. I hear people talk about their privacy in their home, Well, that's limited, because... If your home is owned by the state and you're a senior in a senior citizen facility or you're living in the projects, you're limited to what you can do. I I visited a woman that's living in a senior citizen facility at 9 o'clock. Someone knocked on the door telling her her guests had to be out by 11. So we see our civil liberties just being taken away. And we have to make sure we educate people. That is not that any of us are doing anything that's wrong. It's a matter that we have the right to do it to ourselves in private, that our lives are not, we are not exhibitionists. And, uh, again, the technology has just grown so much, and the laws aren't in place. And this third part, and as, as Snowden said, the case and the laws that all of this is hinging on is something from the 1970s, whether or not the cops got a warrant to get someone's telephone records. Well, this is way out of hand. Now, you know, your phone, my phone, I go certain places and my phone assumes is where I work. It makes all kind of assessments about you. I have an iPhone that never recognizes me, and I believe it's because of the way I look and the way my face facial expressions are, because the algorithms that they're using are set up using white male faces first and whomever they think is appropriate, and I don't think they included African-American women in that profile. So uh, I see this as being something that needs to be changed. It needs to be some changes to the industry. As Snowden said, if there could very well be uh, where our little, that little image of a human is, there could be things letting me know that apps are open on my phone. And no, these smartphones, my newest smartphone isn't like my old one, I can't push the button very easily and even turn it off. It's off, but again, it's not really off because every time a message comes through, it pings. Every time a message comes through, my computer pings. So my concern sometimes is just not even having it in the room where I am. But again, I think there needs to be um, uh Uh, This is something that we need to talk about, uh, changing or putting in place actual laws that protect the privacy of the citizens from corporate uh, manipulation to protect our privacy, to be able to allow us to turn these devices off, and of course, as both Brother Anthony and Brother Robert mentioned, we need to use many ways of communicating, and we should definitely not lose the art of writing, and we definitely should make sure the U.S. Postal Service is always alive and well. There's nothing like a penned letter and a stamp, and um, there's a lot of work ahead, and the only way we can get this work done is to organize and educate the youth, as uh, Brother Hakeem had mentioned concerning the insurrectionists. They're young people in the average age, I think he said, was 33. So we need to educate these 20-something, these teenagers, these 10-year-olds right now about civil liberties and privacy and the Fourth Amendment. And not all speech is free speech. We allow in this country such horrible things to be covered by the First Amendment. But yet we have uh, Israel using its spyware to manipulate and spy on lawyers, journalists, activists. This isn't fighting terrorism. This isn't fighting crime. And I would go so far as to say this is a form of terrorism. It's a form of technological terror that someone's data can be just extrapolated and they have no right to know and no right to defend themselves against its use.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Suda Illinois. We are listening to Africa on the move. We We're going to make a trans- transition from what's going on in your world community, discuss some recent articles as it relates to a theme today, which is the hair we go to. We'll be right back after we take this station break. Ooh.
6: my journey yeah. yeah 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 made it through my journey made
1: it through my journey Hello Reno! A
6: bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his free rovala, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods
1: yeah, 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 yeah. If you think
0: of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land, some have lost their home. They live in other countries their freedom almost gone Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine, Palestine needs our love needs our
9: love
0: Palestine,
1: Palestine.
0: needs her freedom Palestine Palestine needs our love. love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why. People cannot live, so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, cause Palestine, Palestine, needs, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine. Palestine, Palestine. Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs Palestine, Palestine. Needs, our love. needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed, plant the seed of love, and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone So all the world will know That Palestine Palestine. Palestine. Needs her freedom freedom. Palestine
1: Palestine.
0: Needs our love Needs our love Palestine. Palestine Palestine Needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine, needs our love. We
2: welcome you back to Africa on the Moon as we made our transition theme tonight to have you go through. We'd like to entertain the upcoming article which has been titled, Transit. Justice is racial justice. This article was published on the 20th of September, 2020. And what it deal with is this issue of public bus route service that is essential to the African community. I know many of us can identify with this particular phenomenon because historically, throughout the cities, there's seen there seen to be a rollback on public services and when you're dealing with a community that is composed of 1.5 million people with one-third of the people, uh, Africans, and when you look at the importance of public transportation as it relates to the means of getting people to and from work, to and from different institutions and stores that they need in order to carry out, carry out the living of their daily lives, it becomes a crucial issue when we talk about cutting back these kind of services. So we would like to have a discussion on this particular article as it relates to this whole question of justice, justices, racist justice. If I would you, Brother Anthony, when you look at this particular article, one of the things to raise that because of the impact of the pandemic and the calling for cutting back services, cutting-back budgets, et cetera, Um, there's a Proposition 15 that is being initiated within this community, which really look at the issue of making the wealthy pay a share and tax the wealthy order for this particular um, segment of society don't lose access to public. What is your take on how they have addressed and looking at this issue? What the issue of transit justice racial justice from your perspective?
10: Uh it is uh, ra- racial justice because of the heavy dependence that uh, that mass transit has upon Africans and uh you know, the uh you know, as well as the indigenous People of this, uh, you know, of this society, in order to keep functioning. I mean, uh, this article points out that uh, that AC Transit, uh, you know, the ridership is uh, is one third African, and uh, eight and eighty uh, percent of the employees are 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 Africans. So uh, so, and I'm pretty sure that's a reality in a lot of uh, cities throughout the U.S. That uh, the the ridership and the employees are predominant uh, 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 are, are uh, uh, you know are predominantly African, and so uh, so I think transit justice is definitely uh, ra- racial justice, and also uh and also is in the interest of uh, society as a whole to make sure that mass transit uh functions because uh it alleviates uh, you know uh you know some of the, uh uh some of the uh it in a way it benefits uh uh people ov- overall because it, it it minimizes uh the amount of uh, environmental pollution uh that goes into the uh water, atmosphere and land uh you know as a result of people using mass transit and uh using their cars a lot less so and uh, you know, and uh, and I think uh and I think so I think therefore even people that don't use mass transit themselves should help subs- subsidize it. Because it is a public service and uh, uh some su- something that's for the public should be uh subsidized by everybody. Not just military people that Benefit that that are told that d- depend directly upon it. Thank you, brother. And
2: brother, high key, your transit justice is racial justice.
7: I'm sorry. One more time.
2: The question is: Transit justice is racial justice. What's your position on that question? As you read this article.
7: Yeah, I, I think so. I think so, Brother Africa. I, I, I think, you know, one of the things that the article makes very, very clear is that with respect, you know, to um, to investments, you know, in the community, over the last decade or so, investments in black communities has decreased considerably. So We talk about a lack of investment in terms of public education, social services, and other public goods, in particular when it comes to, you know, uh, the uh, – Increase, you know, creating very good jobs for people to have. So clearly that's, that this investment theme is, is consistent in terms of how capitalism flows. One of the things that in a system which fundamentally gives all the financial benefits to the wealthy, there are certainly increasingly little money to go around in terms of the needs of the masses of people. In order to compensate for all that money going to wealthy people, then it the cuts to services to the poor people is essentially what's taking place. But, but perhaps more in cities, brother Africa. I think one of the things is that uh, you know, uh, oftentimes in terms of just in terms of methodology, one of the ways in which you bring about gentrification is the first to un- destroy the economic base of the community to make those uh, to make the uh, situation, uh, particularly when it comes to housing, uh, very precarious. And a situation of housing precarious, or if the houses. Delapidated it gives the city called Blanche a uh, justification to move in to move people from those properties And then they have to be sold very cheaply to very well rich people who can then develop them and sell them to very rich people So clearly, you know, there's always uh, you know uh, got to be the, the political angle It's something that we always have to be concerned about when we talk about uh, you know in terms of this investment as it relates to You know these communities of color around around the country also, one other thing, Brother Africa, in terms of Prop 15, which is the tax corporations, uh, there, is a, there is a fundamental problem in terms of taxing corporations. Uh, one of the things is that when you, know, when, when you talk about taxing corporations, the thing that when we talk about the amount of power that corporations have, their ability to move is, is, is very, very easy to achieve. And so, in fact, in, in the past, there have been situations in corporations rather than pay higher taxes or than pay better wages. Corporations simply up and move. In fact, that is what's happening in terms of the West Coast. So that, so in, in terms of the ability to tax the corporation, that may be problematic. Also, the accounting tricks that corporations employ. Uh, now, if you go into tax corporations, is based upon their proceeds, based upon the revenues, based upon what they bring in. Well, if they are able to transfer those proceeds of those revenues uh other places and and, and to give you a projection of, ex, uh, of expenditures and uh, – or, or projection of or, or money's earned, uh, which doesn't really reflect uh, the actual earnings of the corporation, they can create a situation in which they in which they can make it like they're actually operating at a loss. And there's nothing, and it's all legal. There's nothing you can do in terms of, in terms of that. So in that context, in terms of your ability to tax these corporations, that also becomes problematic. And also keep in mind, brother Africa, you know one of the things is that when when Back in you know back in the in the, in the 80s back me, back in the early 2000s when they defined uh, uh, corporations as uh, as people keep on, remember the Citizens United ruling which which says the conservative Supreme Court says that corporations are people of course you don't understand mm-hmm. corporations are not people it's an entity but because they define them as people they have certain inherent rights and so that too sort of uh, makes it almost impossible in terms of taxing, in terms of taxing corporations because essentially what you're saying is that if there are people, then how they're taxed, there has to, to be a certain standard in terms of how you go about taxing them. You can't tax them based upon how much they earn, because in a, as, a, as a person, you have, have revenues in terms of you know, uh, a certain tax benefits based upon your kind of investments. So in that context, corporations can invest in what they, in all kinds of instruments or all kind, make all kinds of investments to make sure – that they are actually they responsibility that are responsible in terms of taxes actually decreases, so that under, undermines your ability in terms of actually taxing corporations. So it seems to me if you're sincere about taxing corporations, I think one of the things you want to do is to tax their securities because one you know, cause one of the things they're always buying and selling securities, tax I mean you know stocks, bonds, and those kind of things. The key is to tax those things in terms of getting you that tax basis that you seek in terms of limiting the situation that the people in California find themselves with respect to declining uh, investments, you know, in, uh, in the public infrastructure and uh, transit in California. So clearly, Brother Africa, I think it sounds good on the surface, but tax incorporation in the context of capitalist society is a very difficult endeavor.
2: Thank you, Brother hacking Sister Eleanor, talk to us. They talk about the need to continue to fund police departments, you don't talk about making no tax cut there. They talk about the importance of privatized transportation, such as using companies like Uber. What do you make of these suggestions? How do they play a role in undermining the interest of the public transportation concept? Your response to this article, well, of uh, Eleanor.
5: Well, I think any uh, transportation – I think transportation cuts are, are, are racist and class-oriented in that it is the working class and uh, African-Americans. We may make up 8% of the nation, but we're we're leading the charge in terms of uh, incarceration, public transportation, and rent, renting. So we're definitely – disproportionately uh, represented in those areas. But public transportation is important for the environment. As uh, Brother Anthony mentioned, when we have um, uh, buses running on anything other than fossil fuel or even buses running, periods and it's an efficient, good transportation system. This pulls people out of cars. And as far as Uber and Lyft, these are private businesses that are trying to, as the article mentions, uh, privatize public transportation that is only accessible to uh, a certain class of people in many ways. Because if you try to call uh, Uber, and uh, it's, it's snowing, well, your Uber ride is going to be far more expensive than your taxi ride. But these people aren't licensed that drive these Ubers and these lifts, and nor are they paid as responsible workers. Now, in Richmond, it's great to know that uh, the drivers in this particular place are uh mainly minorities because that was a hard battle and it's one that's constantly a struggle in many urban areas. Uh many transit companies used to be exclusively jobs for whites. That has changed as uh people have fought for greater uh Uh, unity through unions and other organizations. But the bottom line is public transportation is essential to protecting our environment and our communities. We don't need a bunch of people in their cars driving to the supermarket six blocks away. But what we see, and we see, for example, we saw in Florida, we saw where persons weren't getting the vaccine because there was only one bus that came along once every hour or, or and, and, and it was a two hour round trip by bus, something that could have been done more efficiently if there were one or two progressive revolutionaries in the neighborhood that would take several people to be vaccinated whom owned a car. But you don't run across, Uh, You know, we have to educate people to really stand up and be revolutionaries and how they apply that to their day-to-day life. But the reality is this article uh, talked about uh, public transportation and to eliminate, and it's happening all across this country. There's a move to eliminate uh, or, or, or reduce public service. And it really stuck its head up during the coronavirus. And I have seen communities across the country where they've seen the transit system is set up to bus you in your neighborhood at a certain hour and bus you out at another hour uh, uh, in the morning. It's reminiscent of the old-time apartheid, you know, or segregation as laws of the United States or of apartheid in South Africa. So, no, we need to improve public transportation. We need to make sure tax lifts and these people begin to be taxed as what they are, transit services, and that they pay for their fair share. And I think Brother Akeem talked about another form of uh, revenue through taxation. Certainly the rich are not paying enough, and we got to take the responsibility of supporting the infrastructure off of the backs of of the poor and put it on the back of the corporate corporations and the rich. And this phenomena of a corporation having the rights of a person, it it always baffles me, but it is true and it is a reality. And, uh, that's why everyone incorporates and they make sure they're a corporation rather than a limited liability corporation because they don't have any liability or any responsibility. Look at Jeff Bezos. He, he, I understand he says he makes $86,000 a year. Well, how did he become the world's richest man owning the world's uh, wealthiest company? So there's so much manipulation going on, but The bottom line is, in this case, I would support the Proposition uh, 15 that would tax corporations to raise as much as the $25 million for uh, the transit company. Environmentally sound, it's economically sound, and it's socially sound.
2: Thank you, Sister. Hello. We'll make our transition to Brother Moses. See the man with the master plan, brother Moses. the trans suggestions, race suggestions. what's your thoughts?
8: Well, sounds like uh, we we have uh needs that are being met
1: uh and uh I don't know um we
8: I'm not even sure where to go with this, uh, uh, the transportation.
2: The transit justice, race justice.
1: Mm.
2: Well, what's your take? What you got uh, from the article? They talk about how they want to take these services away, which will impact a live segment of uh, people of non-European. Also they talk about the uh, economic impact. Most of the folks who work for the transit system, they have a lot of segment uh African people. So one of the solutions yeah, no. they propose is the find money from the rich and the wealthy. what do you make of that strategy? Give me your, your thoughts that's on true. it. This is something that's going on in all the cities. So what you what you make of it?
8: Well, we need we need advertis. We need public we need with with the the uh, global warming and all the needs for uh, better economical use of our resources, we need public transportation, and, and it's true that you know the third world or, or people of color seem to be more in, more in that industry than other people, and so any any setbacks affect affect us. Uh, just like with the post office, uh, any any vital service that's going on, we're usually on the front line workers. Uh, I, I you know I just think that the transportation has to be has to be supplemented uh, by the governmental structures, and, uh, and I know it's there's it's possible to have free transportation for like during the during this pandemic, uh, the some of the county buses were free, and, uh, you know, uh, I thought that was a good gesture. Uh, uh, I, I'm not sure where to go. I'll leave it right there. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Brother Rollins. Before we make the transition, panelists, I'd like to just get your response to when I read this article and think about this article, um, one of the things come to mind to show you how vulnerable we are as workers or as a a class of people who don't control our own means of production. And that's to say, there seems to be a message that at this point in time, since capitalism no longer needs us to carry out a particular duty or function in terms of this concept called work, that means that they're not going to provide no means to get to work because they have cut... Are cutting this particular aspect of our lies out. Does that make sense to you, Brother haki That logic.
7: Well, uh, it makes perfect sense, Brother Africa. Uh, we talk about the evolution of capitalism. Uh, one of the things you know we're very very clear on is that the role of automation is playing increasingly a larger part in terms of in terms of the labor force. And so, and so we talk about the need for labor. Uh, we got to understand that labor is almost coming to the point where its very existence is really esoteric, in which you know, they, really don't, they really don't need uh, uh, laborers. More importantly about Africa, I think when we talk about it, how investments are made in society, one of the things when we talk about the financialization of the economy, and we talk about in order to make money now, all you need is money. So investments is the way to make money now. Well, when you talk about investments, you don't, you don't include labor, because labor becomes esoteric. So one of the reasons we were able to, to move large, corpor- I mean large corporations are able to move from the U.S., large factories are able to move from the U.S. to to the, to, to to the middle uh, to to, the, to Asia. One of the reasons it was it did that because they understood in doing that there were a lot of profits to be had, and so that's precisely what they did. And so they understood in terms of making profit, if you create a situation in Asia where these economies are pumping out you know products that, you can, that, that, that you, can, uh, you can import relatively cheaper, then that means your profits increase. And so therefore, all you need is investments in terms of getting wealthy. And so this is the fundamental problem that you have. So in the context of capitalism, if you're not talking about investments, the problem becomes, what does that mean in terms of your future? And this is the problem we try to get people to understand. You know, Brother Africa, let me say this and let me be very, very clear, and I hope, uh, certainly no offense, but people should understand it very, very clearly. There's an old saying which says that people who see only with their eyes is easily fooled. And this this essentially sums up the problem that we're confronted with as a community. We, we only understand what we see. For instance, when we talk about unemployment, we like to think that people are unemployed simply because they're lazy or they don't want to work. That's what we're told. That's what we believe. So when we see people who don't want to work, we start to confirm our biases that people don't work simply because they're lazy or they're unmotivated. But in fact, when you look deeper in terms of how the system operates, the reason why people don't work, simply because in order for people to work, it will undermine profits. In order to maximize your profits, in order to make more profits, you need fewer people. That is the fundamental tenet of capitalism. It's not about everybody have a job who wants a job. It's not about that. It's about minimizing labor to the extent that you can maximize your profits. So the less people work, the more money you make, the more profits you have. So when we talk about economy heating up, that's precisely what they're telling you. Too many poor people with a job is not good for profits. People, please understand what I'm saying to you. So if you sit here thinking that someone don't want to work because they're lazy or they're irresponsible, think again. We must understand that this is a system in place. And if we don't understand fundamentally that there's a system in place that produces these results, then we'll never understand why the situation for so many people in the society, particularly our community, is so precarious. So we have to wake up and understand and stop seeing only with our eyes and begin to actually think about what the stuff that's going on. And we only can think about what's going on. We need two things. One, we need organization. And secondly, we must read. There is no getting around that. As painful as that is, and I'm going to say this now, and I, I'll probably regret it later. But a friend of mine, I told my friend, a friend, friend of mine, she asked me, she said, listen, she said, you, you take your COVID-19, she, you take your COVID-19 virus, uh, uh, vaccine yet? I just responded back. I said, do you know what furin? Do you know what furin is? Uh, I want you to look that up and, and act. Then actually, I want you to put this in the browser. Ask the browser why is it that furin cleavage is found on a spike protein of of of, of, of COVID-19 virus. Ask your, you know, ask your, put that in your browser for me and, 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 and get back to me. And let me know. Well, she her position was that uh, she don't have time to read. She can't do that. Uh, she can't read a book. That's just, just too much to read. So my, so my response to that was have a good night. You know, just have a good night. I'm not, I'm not even going to go through all of that about I'm, I'm telling you something for your own good, and you can tell me that it's too much reading. So my position is have a good night. So what I'm saying to people, and I hope nobody take offense to this, but understand the magnitude of the situation that we're confronted with. You must have organization and you must read. You've got no choice. If we are to save our children, if we are to save ourselves, we must, read, we must organize. There's no getting around that. No politician is going to save you. No wishful thinking is going to save you. The only thing going to save you is hard, cold work, actually thinking about what it is that you're up against and why you have to create this organization, why you have to format, uh, uh, uh the thought processes in people's minds to make sure that, that, that they're in a position to contribute to discussion to move this thing forward. So, Brother Africa, uh, you listen, listen you know, uh you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. Uh as far as people visions of power, as far as capitalism is concerned, labor is a, esoteric and for us to think otherwise is simply naive. And I'll close with that.
2: Thank you, Brother Hackie. Let me make this transition to the next article. Particularly as related to Athenian night the hell we go through. This is a deal with a a phenomenon that we've been dealing with. Since they are a arrival to the shores of the so-called um, U.S., and the title of this article coming from Yahoo News, dated July 30th, 2021, please look up this article and read it for those who may have not. It's something we've been grappling with since we've been here. The title of the article, by, written by David Love, is "If Biden Is Biden and Democrats Think Black People Will Repeat 2020." think again. You know, me and Brother Anthony, we had an early discussion on this. I found it to be real interesting in terms of some of the thesis of major point that came out from this article, if we will repeat what we have done in the past. But anyway, Brother Anthony, I'm going to let you take the lead on that. When we talk about if Biden and Democrat think black people we repeat 2020, think again. What is your response to that, Brother Anthony? Uh,
10: I think I think uh the you know that the that, that the uh, the argument the author makes, you know, assumes that um you know, seems to uh, you know, ha- uh open with the perception that uh that the Democrats um uh, you know, uh uh, you know that 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 that, that things are all, will, will always remain the same, and goes against the dialectics of history. Eventually, African people are going to learn that the Democratic Party, nor the Republican Party, gives a damn about them. It doesn't and uh and the thing about it though and the thing about it though for nearly uh nearly since the great depression uh uh africans that can vote have voted overwhelmingly uh, Demo- uh democratic and uh and uh, this um and prior to that uh, once uh, once uh, the 14th Amendment gave us the right to vote, the majority of Africans that could vote voted Republican. We've been pl- uh, uh, playing this du- uh, du- duopoly game for nearly a century, and it hasn't gotten us uh, nothing but reforms, with which we had to shed blood for. And uh, you know, and the thing about, I think the essence of this article is that Africans will not, uh, you know, uh, continue to tolerate, uh, you know, their vote being taken lightly, as a lot of uh, a lot of Europeans, uh, you, you know, politicians seem to do, and. Um, you know and 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 it's gotten to a point where uh where the duopoly doesn't have to work to earn our vote because it seems like they've gotten to, uh down to science which way we're going to go and uh that's not necessarily the case and i think the uh another uh another lesson to be taken from this is that we need to form our own political independent political organizations, and that takes a lot of work it is not it's definitely not easy, but it is necessary if we're going to uh you, you, you know uh you know seize political power and really uh you know get our freedom.
2: Thank you, Brother. After Sister Eleanor talked to us, when you look at this article, it seems you were saying in an indirect way, indirectly way that the Democrats have no respect for African people. They are not willing to fight for African interests, even though the Africans have given the power to do that. This is something that we've been dealing with since we've been, been here for the last 200 years. What can you expect? In the future, when it comes to Africans being disenfranchised when it relates to the vote,
1: and when the well, Democratic
2: party comes to and the Democratic Party comes to save us um, again, will the African people be there, given the reality is they have the majority in both house plus have the presidency. What's up with that, my sister? What's up with that talk to me?
5: Well, one thing's going to happen for sure. With uh, these 18 states that have passed these voter suppression laws, they had an intent. They wanted to make sure that the electorate never had an opportunity to vote again. And what will, is going to happen? We just completed a census. So voting districts are going to be redrawn. So they're going to continue the gerrymandering that began uh, in the 90s and further affected. But most importantly, what's going to happen if the Democrats don't make a decision to pass these voter, two pieces of voter legislation that have been sitting around on the Hill for a couple of years is that they won't have to worry about being in office again because they won't, because the people who elected them will not be able to vote. Because these voter suppression laws are just that. They limit a person's right to vote, when they can vote, how they can vote, what type of ID they need to vote, how long they have to live to where to vote, or, you know, to vote in their particular district, and limiting the polling sites, restricting polling sites, forbidding people from offering water to persons standing online. Let's see. Because we're gonna lose, the people are gonna lose. People have lost in 18 states a very basic right that was hard fought for us to gain. And that was the right to vote in this United States. In theory, we gained that right more fully than we had known in in generations in 1965. Now it's going up in smoke. So if the Democrats do not have the will to pass laws that prohibit and restrict these oppressive laws passed by 18 states in this United States, they won't have to worry again. We're down the road to right-wing uh, fascism, neo-fascism. You saw Donald Trump. You hear people following the QAnon. As Brother Hakeem said, people aren't reading. Nobody's going to uh, pick up Ralph Ellison's uh, The Invisible Man and read it. Nobody's going to read Car G. Woodson's Miseducation of the Negro. It doesn't matter that it's less than 200 pages. No one's going to sit up and read things fall apart. They'll tell you, oh, that's some Nigerian guy who wrote that. He's dead. So what? But the bottom line is this article laid it out clearly that these laws have already been passed in 18 states to restrict the electorate's access to voting for our people not to be able to vote the census was just completed that's when we redefine voting districts we know that this is not a full democracy we live in a republic so it doesn't matter what the popular vote is what matters is the number of electoral votes that one receives in a national election but these national these, these these national boundaries also affect your state and county and city uh elections as well. And if the democrats don't stand up now, they've not only let the United States, they've not only let African Americans down and and Native Americans, indigenous people because There are all kinds of people that come here that may be brown and yellow and other things, but they don't suffer as the African-American and the indigenous people in this country suffer. Now, we should all be united because all working-class people are oppressed, but the bottom line is this is a basic opportunity to stand up for civil rights that were hard won by African Americans and that is to pass that John Lewis bill. And don't water it down. Don't weaken don't don't fall to your knees for anyone. We put you there, Biden. We put you folks there. American people spoke. They voted in record numbers, whether they were black, brown, red, yellow, it didn't matter. But if you take away the people's right to vote by restricting who can vote, you don't have to worry. You won't be there anymore.
2: You know, Brother Haki, I think the opposite out real clear that one was surmise that Joe Biden has no interest in the African community. Nor does the Democratic Party. Is there an incorrect, uh, maybe, a assessment based upon the articulation of the output in this article? Can one not come to that conclusion?
7: No, one cannot come to that conclusion. But, by the way, let me just turn to Sister Eleanor, uh, all Things Fall Apart, uh, Chinua Achebe. Uh, is a great writer, and I encourage people to read his work. Also, Wole Sh- Savinka and Gugiwantiago very good African writers, I mean, they, they keep it 100. I mean, they keep it real. So you can learn a great deal in terms of history by reading those three authors. Uh, but in terms of asking a question, Brother African, let's, let's, let's compare Biden to Trump. Uh, when we talk about corporate, reigning corporations, uh, Biden uh, refuses to reign corporations. Let's talk about uh, taxing the wealth, wealthy. Biden opposes taxing the wealthy. Let's look at homelessness. Biden ain't innovating any kind of plan in terms of addressing homelessness that's growing leaps and bounds in the society. How about full employment? Biden doesn't support full employment. He, not at all. Uh, he supports the relationship uh, that currently exists among corporations where they ship jobs abroad for the purposes of maximizing profits you know, by importing you know, or cheaply made goods into the country, but thereby allowing corporations to make, make billions and billions of dollars at the expense of all the poverty that exists in America. Uh, mass incarceration. He doesn't he doesn't he doesn't espouse anything given in terms of any mass incarceration. Uh, voter, voter rights laws. And we talk about the disenfranchisement the voter suppression of people of color in the society, then where is Biden in terms of why his energy is not spent toward an, you know, uh, enacting voter rights laws or pushing for voter rights laws to ensure that people have a right to vote. So clearly when you get down to a brother Africa, the bottom line is that when the difference between Trump and Biden is one of style. And let me just say this very, very clearly. I, I, I'm feeling like I'm beating a, a dead horse, but let me just say this one more time. One of the things we have to understand, we have to understand the fundamental reality as they exist, not what we think they should be, but we have to understand the way they exist. In the context of America, talk about funding for these political jobs. The system is set up to make sure in order for you to compete, You have to go to wealthy people for funding in order to do that. The reason why they do that is because they want to make damn sure, you know, that the message you you, you articulate as a politician is crafted to the benefit of the wealthy. It doesn't matter if you're an African politician, a white politician, an Asian politician, a Latin politician, it doesn't matter. And so in that sense, their ability to actually carry out the will of the people is to a large extent curtailed. They can't. If they did, they would go against their own self-interest. I don't know how to make this any clearer. I, I you know, maybe I'm just maybe I'm I'm, I'm it incorrectly. Uh, but to the best of my ability, I'm trying to explain the systematic barriers in terms of why we can we can no longer continue to see politicians as as, 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 as a route or, or the route, you know, about salvation. Politicians simply cannot philosophically. I keep saying, politicians' role is a reinforcing system. It's not to change the system. It's to reinforce the system. If their job is to reinforce the system, why do you think that they're going to buck that system or try to change that system? They don't. I can't make that any clearer. I can't make that any clearer. You know what I mean? We're suffering. The unemployment, the homelessness, I mean, it's going leaps and bounds. The joblessness is going leaps and bounds. It's all predicated. It's all based upon a system of neoliberalism, which which is diametrically opposed to the interests of the people. How clearer can I make this? How clearer can I make this? I can't make it any clearer. Maybe you know, maybe somebody can call in and make it clearer. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm using words in which people are maybe uh 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 are not are not used to to hearing. I don't know what it is, but I can't make it any clearer. I can't make it any clearer. If we continue to think that politicians is our salvation, Then you know, you know what? You know, when, 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 when we're being ruthlessly slaughtered uh, and turned in concentration camps, when that happens, I certainly hope nobody turned around and said, you know what, if only we had entrusted our, our, our trust in these politicians, this wouldn't have happened. The bottom line is that we're talking about a system in place, and for whatever reason why people don't want to see a system in place, it's beyond me. It's a system in place. It doesn't make you. It doesn't make you uh, somehow. Um, uh, it doesn't make you a bad person to acknowledge there's a system in place which which produces a lot of these ill effects: homelessness, unemployment, poverty that we're currently experiencing. And if we say that these things are going to continue to proliferate, the homelessness, unemployment, and poverty. If we say these things can continue to increase, then what does that mean for the aspirations of people in society, particularly working in or poor people in society? As part of the African community, who are disproportionately poor, unemployed, and homeless, I'm not going to wait around for politicians to do that which is right because I know that's simply impossible, It's simply untenable. They simply can't do it. They won't do it. And, I, and 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 we have to understand, we have to get it through our heads that we have the power to change the the, the paradigm. We only we working together can change that paradigm, but we have to. We have to work together. We have to understand what the issues are. We have to understand what we're fighting against in order to change this. That's the only way we can do it. It's not going to come through some political legislation from politicians who are corrupt to the bone. I can't make it any clearer, and i close with that.
2: Brother Moses, we work hard. We go out to vote. We give our, our, our approval to certain representatives to represent our interests. And the reality is we continue to be sold out. What do you take from this article, Brother Moses? Do you think African people would do what they did in the past for the upcoming election? I think we love that, Brother Moses. What we're going to do right now, uh, panelists, this is how we're going to move. We're going to take a quick station break. And when we come back, we're going to come back with our closing remarks. As it relates to the hair we go through, this is part one of the 2 5 series. We'll be right back. I have a question for everyone. If you had all the money in the world, just say, if you had all the money in the world, what would you do with it? We're in the seat. We are taking the heat. Because as we define it, we're going to stand behind it. Our theme tonight is the how we go through. This is part one of uh, a two-part series. Today's day is the 15th of August, 2021. And what we're going to do right now, we're going to bring in our political panelists and analysts, and they're going to give us their final thoughts for tonight. But before we do that, there are a couple announcements we'd like to make. And those are, number one, again, we'd like to wish Brother Aki a happy birthday. We also would like to remind you, don't forget that there's an ongoing planning activity where we'll be taking a feeder ride to Cuba under the banner of the African Awareness Association. If you have an interest in joining us and going to Cuba and see for yourself, the dates from December 27 to January 3rd, please email us at move 2 at gmail or you can contact African Awareness Association. Just through email. I email the African Awareness Association, all spelled out together, number two at gmail.com. So come and join us. And last but not least, we also like to remember that the issues that is going on in Haiti, the problems dealing with the earthquake with our brothers and sisters in Haiti, we'd like to recommend if you'd like to maybe get an update and how you can support and help, please go and check out the free. Haiti movement by Sister Iseli Dunto. I think she is a very reliable source. She's been doing the work. Uh, we would like for you, you know, take a look and check out and follow her direction as relates to the movement in Haiti. So those are our announcements for the day. Right now we're going back to our political panelists and analysts. We start off uh, with Sister Eleanor, and we ask you for her final thoughts for the night. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for the night.
5: Well, I um, I just want to say um, I think it was a really uh, great evening, but I'd like to say something about our last article, and that is is that um, this voter suppression that's happening in 18 states has been uh, um, improperly eliminated, uh, uh, classified as a Jim Crow kind of thing, but it's much worse than that. It's not only going to affect African-Americans or Native Americans. It's going to affect a whole gamut of Americans that will not be able to vote. They're going to find themselves somewhere and not be able to vote. It is so essential that that John Lewis Voting Rights uh, Advancement Act be passed and for that uh, People's Act. To be passed, voting is, is is all we really have here. Because, as you so elo- everyone so elo- eloquently states, capitalism is—you know—we have a few individuals, a, a, a small percentage of our American population repressing the rest of us, and and there's a whole sector that's shrinking all the time they call them the middle class and it's not uh, African people that are causing you to lose your stance but it is capitalism so uh, we can't be expected as that article said to organize ourselves out of this mess because even if we do if the last election didn't show anyone anything it showed that There can be recounts, and there can be potential theft. Not that any theft happened, because we all know that it didn't. But we know this country is so divided right now that the only road home is uh, for folks to have that very basic right to vote. And we have to have major legislative and political change, revolutionary change to green, to stop our carbon footprint, to reduce it, just to stop it. We can't, it's not about reducing it at this point. It's about eliminating carbon emissions, finding other ways to produce energy. And I don't think nuclear is, uh, Bill Gates thinks nuclear energy is the absolute. Well, I don't think it's the absolute – I don't even think we've explored the possibilities of energy alternatives. And um, with that in mind, I'd like to say thank you. Um, I stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people as they they are standing up against Israeli apartheid. I stand in solidarity with the people of Afghanistan as they are hoping – and uh, standing up against the Taliban and their oppressive uh, violence and um, the people of Belarus and uh, all oppressed people and our oppressed brothers and sisters. And as far as transportation goes, I support the transit union, and I do not think anywhere in this country do we need to limit or decrease public transportation, we need to expand it and save Mother Earth and we'll save ourselves. If we can't save everyone from the coronavirus, we can't save anyone. So with that, I'd like to say good night and thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Sister Noah. And let's see if we got Brother Moses back. Brother Moses. Your
8: final thoughts for tonight. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Ron. Um, I think, you know, that we are in a, a race to cure racism and that, you know, we we have to recognize who are friends and who are enemies. And, uh, and it's in the interest of the vast majority of the people to be uh anti bigoted and anti prejudice and so I stand in solidarity with the, with the interests of the vast majority of the people It's only the the one percent who are stuck on this are stuck in this economy uh to defend this economy and in order to maintain their wealth their lifestyles and their income and their exploitation and so the mainland percentage a vast majority of the people i mean I mean you know, and so you know I don't understand uh people who don't have love for the people uh um, I hope that uh voting voting we we uh, we we have we have uh, we have the the right to vote and we have to maintain that right to vote. And we have to fight for that right to vote. And uh and uh overall uh, have a good night.
2: Thank you, Brother Moses. Go ahead brother Hockey, your final thoughts for tonight. Uh,
7: you know, uh, Brother Moses, if, if you know, if we have a uh or we have a uh, criticism, uh let's be direct with the criticism. Uh, the thing we got to be very clear on it, you know, because I, my position is a very strong position in terms of uh, the system malfeasance, the kind of evil the system does, I'm not unapologetic about that. And I call anybody out who, who, who promotes a system that's destructive not only to humanity but to the African community. So I, I don't see it as a lack of love for the people. On the contrary, if I didn't give a damn about the people, you know what? I wouldn't engage in these discussions. I'd the hell with it. I practice cynicism. I just say, for hell, You know, they don't care, I don't care. So everything's all, things fine. I just do me. I don't care about people if I really didn't care about the masses of people. So let's be very, very clear on that. So when you say things like, you know, somehow I'm, uh, you know, that I'm my love for the people, then let's be, be direct about it. Say to me, Hi, keep high key, brother, high key, are you expressing a lack of love for the people? Be, you, if that's your criticism, then say it. I have no problem with that. You know what I'm saying? I'm politically mature, so I don't take any of this stuff personally. But I do articulate my position, and, I don't, and I'm, I'm apologetic about my position. So if people take it personally as an attack, then that's on them. And it's just the course of the struggle. I don't care who I'm talking to. If they say something that is, that is, that is destructive to the aspirations of the people, then I call them on it. And if they take it, to, take it as a defense, then so be it. I don't care. I really don't. Because the situation is much too precarious, much too deadly, much too dangerous for the masses of people in society. We have to have some clarity in terms of what the hell is going on in society. And if that means I have to elevate my voice or I have to be pernicious in terms of how I express a point, then that's what I'm going to do. Because this is all about survival. So if you really love the people, then you, then, you, then you fight for the people. If you really love the children, then you fight for the children. And that doesn't mean that you have to be gracious in terms of your defense of the people or your defense of the children. So let's be very clear on that point. So if you took offense, my apology, but I'm not going to apologize for my, my, my position in terms of how I articulate you know, my, my concerns in terms of uh, you know, the issues confronting the community. I'm unapologetic about that. Let's be very clear on that point. Uh, and closing brother Africa, I'll simply say, as always, you know, I always encourage people to unravel the matrix because the thing is that, you know, the situation, that, you know, as it relates to capitalism, one of the things we're clear on, there's a couple of things that are very, very clear with respect to capitalism. One is the inherent exploitation, and secondly, the expedience that it espouses. When I talk about the expedience, I'm talking about the fact that anything goes as long as profits to be made. On The context of those two values, if you can call them values, we understand they constitute an implicit threat to humanity. We have an obligation to fight against it. We need organization. We need clarity. And I'm unapologetic about that. And Brother Africa, you have a good night.
2: You say, Brother Hacky. thank you for your contribution to today's program. And now we are go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My, my final thought
10: for tonight is Uh, that the solution to the hell we're facing uh, on earth right now is for us to organize and get politically educated. And we must, uh, you know, develop means of sharing information with each other. Diverse means, not any one method uh you know will work because a lot of us come from different experiences and backgrounds and, and what have you and and uh you know but i think i think it's key uh you know that we get better organized and we politically educate each other and uh we and uh we can and uh last article we discussed tonight shows that we cannot the de- the de- 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 depend upon the capitalist duopoly to save us. It's never been about uh, you know, us. Uh capitalists will go where, wherever the labor is cheapest. And right now that happens to be outside the US. That is why uh you know uh the uh uh you know there's some forces that concern that consider the African uh masses in this country expendable because right now as as the uh, as conditions in the world are constituted uh, we're no longer needed for cheap labor. Uh, Because they found a way to internationalize their labor costs, and that is through imperialism. So we must understand what's going on, not only in the U.S., but also in the world, and where we fit in it. And that we will only obtain our liberation through the achievement of pan-Africanism, the total liberation— and Unification of Africa under Scientific Socialism, which you can find out more about by visiting the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC's website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thank you for having me tonight.
2: Thank you, Brother Anthony. We'd like to thank everyone for their participation for today's program, that's including you, to the listening audience. We'd like to remind you that Africa on the Move is a vehicle or tool under the direction of the African World Association. It comes on a weekly basis, 5 at 7 p.m. Eastern time. We encourage you to spread the word and help us build this institution. We're here for you because we know that while information, our people cannot think. And while organization, our people cannot think clearly. We hope to emphasize those two aspects or those things that we need the most, information and organization. And the best way to do that is to do some formal. This is what Africa on the Move seeks to do. Again, we'd like to thank you for allowing us to come your home this evening. And the thought for tonight is going to leave you with Bob Marley, where he stated that "It's it's better to die fighting for freedom than to be a prisoner all the days of your life. Let me repeat that. From Bob Marley, he stated it's better to die fighting for freedom than to be a prisoner all the days of your life. Think about it. Let's get with it. Until next time, let's fight for Pan-Africanism and continue to move forward ever backward. This has been another episode of Africa on the Moon We leave you with the words of Marvin Gaye. What's going
1: on? Hey.
9: brother, there's far too many of you dying.
3: You know we've got to find a way
9: to bring some love here today. Yeah, Father, Father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the end. Only love can come to You, you know, know we've got to find a way To bring some love and here today oh, oh, oh Pick it black and pick it back Don't punish me with fruit time we're Oh, but who they judge us? Simply 'cause our Oh, you know we oh, oh. to here today. Oh, 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 take it back take it back Come on, talk to me. So you can't speak. Oh.
1: I'm sorry,